watch horror business driving late at night. Psycho 78, 12 o'clock, don't be late. I said all this horror business, my mirrors are black for you. You don't go in the bathroom with me. All right, we're recording. Uh, yeah, whenever you're ready. Greetings and salutations. My name is Justin Lore, and you were listening to another episode of Horror Business. As Hello. Always, here's my co-host, Liam, the real deal, not quite a Vander Holyfield O'Donnell. <laughs> I like your efforts to try to come up with some sort of like cool... Well, I've come up with all the cool names for myself over the years sure, on Facebook, sure. like Bobby Cream, Tony Fresh... Kid Wink, you know, stuff like that. I'm going to go ahead and say that no one has ever called you any of those things. <laughs> no one has ever called me Bobby Cream. I don't ever want anyone <laughs> to ever call me Bobby Cream. I want people to start calling you Bobby Cream, actually. Okay, we can put that out there. We can put that out there. So, before we get started on our themed episode for the most hated of holidays, Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Just uh, wanted to discuss some upcoming things in... The horror-related arena. Most importantly, in about a month is fuck around on my iPad right here. Monster Mania Con in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Monster Mania. Three days of sheer terror. Not unfortunately, not like Paul Bearer sheer terror, <laughs> which would be amazing. I assume if if an actual sheer terror show was allowed to go the length that Paul Bear wanted it to. It would be three days. It would be about three days. Especially if it was at Monster Mania, be like, all right, this song's about Ash and Evil Dead. Ashley, that sounds like a girl's name. No wonder he's always crying. Anyway. And then they would play Walls and I would punch a cosplayer. Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, March 11th through 13th at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I go every year. It's always a blast. Um, I, you know, I, I think we've talked about this, but I'm not a con person. I love cons. If you were going to talk me into going to Monster Mania, how would you do that? How would you explain it to me in such a way that you think well, I would be stoked on it? I took Donnie Mutt to one, and he had a blast. Think about maybe someone <laughs> listening to this who doesn't know who Donnie <laughs> okay. Mutt is. I'm, I'm talking no, to you. That is, I'm talking that to is you. compelling. Yeah, yeah. It's compelling. Um, but, but I'm saying I'm asking because I want someone listening well, the, to this to The hear thing that. is, I, I think the biggest appeal that they, they have at this point is, I'm not going to say they rely heavily on it because that has like negative connotations, but every year they have a lot of the cast from like The Walking Dead. And I don't mean just like, it's not like it's uh, that dork who got killed at the prison it's always like that dork who got killed you know like the white the guy prison. who was who called carol lesbian and then died oh yeah actually. that guy like yeah. that guy it's always like norman reedus or steven yen or you know someone like that uh this year from the walking dead they have alexander breckenridge who was also in america season one of american horror story as moira there was like five m's to being her name because she's beautiful <laughs> and they also have uh, Sarah Wayne Callies, who played Lori on The Walking Dead. Uh, She's in a new show, too, called Colony, right? I've heard that's really good, yeah. I haven't watched it. Um, who else is going to be there? Tony Todd is going to be there this year. Tony Todd, the Candyman. Okay, the so I, you're selling me on the idea that there are people there who are cool. Yes. I can accept that. What do their coolness have to do with me? So I'm going to stand in line <laughs> with other smelly people. Others because, and it's smelly, yes. And then what? They're going to say hi and sign. Because let me, let me explain something to you. So uh, 
<clears throat> and I think this will work because, you know, part of what we do is we update people about our lives. Last night, uh, I went to the chapel at okay. Lafayette College Okay, because Sarah Val was there. Now, for those of you listening who don't know, Sarah Val is a, I guess she has been a journalist. She's a little bit of a comedian. And right now she does these historical books that are also like travel books. Usually she decides there's a historical thing she wants to write about, but instead of just writing about it, she travels. It always is, there's a movement aspect. So she has a new book on Lafayette. Okay. The guy. That was right here when I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sue's just got it. So that particular copy she bought so that when I went to hear Sarah Val, she could sign the book. So that's why I got in line after the event and she was funny. It was interesting. It was cool. Uh, I got in line afterwards to have her sign the book. And that particular experience was not one I enjoyed. Well, one of the things that's, uh, one of the reasons I, I, I like to go is a lot of, some of the, the I shouldn't say a lot, because a lot of the panels are just like basement dwellers. Like, I've seen panels that were like The Simpsons, Itchy and Scratchy. <laughs> like that sure, bad. Sure, sure. Um, but I also saw one, uh, was it, it wasn't at Monster Mania, it was at Parafest a couple years ago. It was Tony Todd, Ernie Hudson, and Danny Glover. And one of the questions sure. for Tony Todd and Ernie Hudson was, what was it like to work with Brandon Lee, Brandon Lee on his last film? And they both give these amazing answers. So it's like, I mean, some of these people, some of these actors, it's just like they're there strictly for like nostalgic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're big into like finding out like how some of your like, like I could listen to Tony Todd, Tony Todd talk about the remake of Night of the Living Dead for hours or The Crow for hours. Like it's cool just to like listen to some of these people talk about the actual craft of making a good horror film. I, now, do you spend much time there shopping? That seems to also be a large That's, portion of uh, it, is people buying things. It's a, I, I mean, there's a few stands that I hit every year. There's like Fright Rags where they do like the custom horror t-shirts. Those yeah. are pretty cool. But a lot of the stuff is just way too mall metal for me. They're like, oh, really? Like custom horror tats. And that's tats, not, not a tattoo, tat. There are a lot of tat daddies. There's a lot of there. tat. No, there's a lot. There's there's one tat daddy. That's me. I'm <laughs> myself right now. There's a lot of dudes with awful, very awful tattoos. Sure. Um, there's also like uh, again because of the cosplay. There's a lot of like weird costumes you can get there, mm. which I'm kind of morbidly fascinated with. They have like studio effects level like masks. Oh. That I could actually be yeah. a little into. Um, if I was a, I'm sure if I was a rich dude, you'd be. I'd that, have yeah. a movie room that had weird shit like that. Yeah, there's um, and there's a company that does. I, I want to say it's Mondo Prints. Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. They do like um, I got one for uh for the Terminator a few years ago, so th- those are cool to check out. The shopping aspect is really cool. That's about fifty mm. percent of the reason I go there, but it's mm. also just like meeting some of these people who've had like who've made films that have had an impact on my life, just to be like, look, you made. Look right here. There's a guy who did Jason Patrick is going to be there on Friday and Saturday, but not Sunday, which sucks because I'll be there on Sunday. But it would be nice to meet Jason Patrick and be like, hey, man, I really like Lost Boys. Do you always go for just one day? Or I always you... go on Sunday because yeah, okay. my work schedule is I work Friday and Saturday. Oh, right. Sure. So I usually go just on Sunday. And it's also there's not as many people there. I'm not mm. a big fan of people. So it's like you go there and there's not a bunch. I mean, there's still weirdos there, but yeah. So I think I don't think we're there yet. I think. At some point, Cinepunks would think about doing like a table there. You should, you totally especially because we have like multiple shows and we could promote it. And although that would be us, right? Like, I feel like our business would have to have a stronger. Yeah. But we, you know, this is technically the 
third episode up on Cinepunk. So, you know, we don't have like we don't have the clout. t-shirts and posters yet. Yeah. But someday soon when when our world takeover is accelerated. All right. So, Monster Mania, what else is coming up that you wanted to highlight? Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else coming up that would be neat to uh Well, I mean, I think it's worth discussing, you know, the the uh things that are sort of new that are happening. So the the witch is coming out. Yes, yes. I'm pretty stoked on that. Are you that pretty... trailer, um, you don't really see much in the trailer. Mm-mm. But that scene where the woman is playing peekaboo with the baby, and then I'm just sure. like, as soon as they showed her going like that, and I was like, okay, like there's something really scary is about to go down, and then the kid's just gone, and that's like... So... Uh, I don't know. I mean, that that's that's one of those. I'm just afraid to get my hopes up, though. And I, I don't mean to be all like, hmm, but like, I, I'll go. I'm I'm definitely gonna go see it. And I'm excited about it. But it's like, I mean, the last time a movie was like that hyped that I can remember was like Dear Mommy. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So, is there anything else you've seen lately that you want to uh, bring up that wasn't the movies that we're gonna be talking about? Uh, I watched Crimson Peak for the first time last night. Oh, you didn't see that one? Was that I didn't see it in theaters. No. What'd you think? Um, I really liked it. I, I, I mean, I love Guillermo del Toro. Okay. So it's like, I, I had faith that it was going to be at, at the very least watchable. Um, but the thing I liked most about it is that how like straightforward it was. There were no, I mean, there was a kind of a twist sort of, but it was like an accept. It wasn't like M night Shyamalan level twists or any modern horror movie, there needs to be like a big impact, like a big twist to propel, to justify you sitting through nonsense for 90 minutes. You don't think it was a little bit of a twist for the movie? Um, well, I mean... Or at least a little bit of like a bait and switch. Now, what are we talking about? <laughs> I hate to do this, but let's just go ahead and say spoilers. Spoilers. In the sense that it's a ghost movie. Yeah. And the ghosts are like almost completely superfluous to the movie. Okay. Uh, that I wasn't really surprised with. I was expecting something like that because I think Del Toro is a, a competent enough filmmaker where he could, you know, market something as a ghost story and then have it, have the real threat be people. Like the ghosts were kind of like, what did you think of his claim? Wasn't he making claims that it wasn't really a horror movie? He was saying that it was more of a, he, his preferred, because it's Del Toro and he's a lunatic, his preferred, uh, I believe it was, it's not a horror movie, it's a gothic romance. He's also Russian. The I was going to say that. <laughs> he's a, also Russian. Yeah, Guillermo Del Toro is a yeah. classic Russian yeah, name. Yeah. So that's yeah. what he was like, it's not a ghost story, it's more of a, a gothic romance, which, yeah, okay, sure, but it's a fucking ghost story. There are ghosts in it. Really scary ghost. There was the the one part where the ghost comes out of the floor and starts crawling towards the main character. That was like some Uncle Frank Hellraiser level bullshit. That like, that really got at you. Scary. Yeah. yeah. I you know I saw it in the theater and I definitely thought it was visually interesting. The more that I thought about it after seeing it, I just didn't like it. Okay. And I didn't. Well, that's not true. I didn't dislike it, and I certainly think a low level Del Toro movie is probably better than a lot of what's coming out in yes. horror generally. Yeah. But still, that being said, it wasn't one of my favorite movies. And I think partly no. it was, um, I'm actually, yeah, I think I'm okay with the whole, there's ghosts, but the ghosts aren't the point thing. Yeah. That's fine. I think it was more just, uh, I, I, I didn't feel drawn into what was happening despite 
great performances. Like I thought Hill Hilson, right? Hilson, Tom Hilson. Yeah. I thought he was great. I thought Chest. I mean, it's almost superfluous. Superfluous is what I want to say. It's almost unnecessary to say that Jessica Chastain was great. Like, She's amazing. She is. Am- she, yeah. she is amazing. Yeah. Period. That's end it. of thought. Yeah. Nothing else to say. But. I I left just kind of feeling like, you know those movies, I guess this is how a lot of people see movies, but you know those movies you see, you enjoy it, but afterwards it's like gone, like it's like it never happened to you. Yeah. And I think it, you know, I saw it shortly after seeing a movie that I really loved, Sicario. Okay. And that's the main difference. They were both movies, I mean not entirety, but they're both movies I enjoyed in the theater. But I was, I still think about Sicario. Like it still comes up, and I'm like, oh yeah, man, that fucking movie. But like Crimson Peak for me, at least. And again, this isn't. I'm not trying to shit on someone else's enjoyment, but just for me, I didn't really like it. And I and I feel bad because some friends really loved it. It's it's the kind of movie that people. I've seen people getting mad that they, other they, people don't like it as much as them. Yeah, there's like a real like now. Well, fuck you guys, sort of thing going on. And I I feel bad. I don't feel that way. Did did the fact that this was one of a admittedly one of del Toro's projects that he did only because he couldn't make at the mountains of madness. <laughs> has, has that, uh, has that taken away some of your enjoyment as well? Uh, maybe I don't, I, I, I think, uh, I think for, for me, I mean, I do. I wonder if part of it is that it really is a Gothic romance and I don't really like those kind of movies. It, it was definitely, it was, it was a little heavy on like the, like there was the one scene um, where they're trapped in the station and then it's like snowing mm-hmm. and it's like Tom Hiddleston starts, you know, Argh! I didn't need to see that. I could have died without knowing what Tom Hiddleston does in bed. Like it, it's very like, all right. Okay. Are you saying you're turned off by male sexuality? No, I'm turned off by Tom Hiddleston's sexuality. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Like if like, if like, I don't know, Michael Fossbender had kicked open the door and ripped his, you know, his buckskin jacket off to reveal his, his pecs and then made love to her. I'd have been like, that's fine. They can do that. Unfair comparison. Did you see shame? Michael Fassbender is like a God among men. Like I, uh, can't. I, I love Michael Fassbender. Yeah. My love of Michael Fassbender. Like I, uh, Thanksgiving night when my girlfriend came up, I was watching X-Men first class and she knocked on the door right when there was the scene in Argentina where he like kills those three Nazis. And I was like, get in here right now and watch him run his hands through his hair. Oh God. <laughs> like, <laughs> But uh, no, but like, you know, it was, it was, uh, I, I, I mean, it was a little too long, two hours. I don't need like a two hour horror movie. It's it, that, that was the only real complaint I had about it. Hmm. Um, also I didn't need to see Tom Hiddleston being jerked off by his sister while she sang a lullaby to him. <laughs> that really got under my skin. It really fucking creeped me out. So I saw recently, speaking of creepy sexual experiences, uh, I saw, now this is a small part of the movie, but uh, I got a review copy of uh, The Guardian. Do you okay. remember The Guardian? I'm not familiar. It's a freaking movie, William Freakin movie, okay. uh, in which there's a woman who uh, is going around being a babysitter. She basically watches people's kids. Okay. And the reason she does that is so that she can eventually steal the kids and offer them to an ancient animate tree that then absorbs the babies into itself that sounds amazing i guess she's the guardian of the tree yeah. the name doesn't really not stick. the guardian of the baby no s- sure. certainly not so yeah. uh this couple is sort of they they it's not like one of those movies where something happens to the kids because the couple sucks the couple seems pretty okay yeah the woman she's british she comes into their lives 
there's a little bit of like flirting and seduction with the husband, but mostly just in his like nothing literally happens, but he keeps dreaming about her. Yeah. Things are getting awkward. Uh, but then for some reason now is the point where things are catching up with her. Like the other family shows up and it's like, Oh, is this person your nanny? Because she, I'm sure she stole our baby. And it's like, it's, it's, it's strange that just at this point is when all of a sudden the modern world's like, wait a minute, this woman, you know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, why now? Uh, but it, you know, spoilers a little bit. It culminates in a few, because it's a tree, there's a few scenes that feel very evil dead esque. Oh, okay. Until, it sort of like the highlight is this dude fighting the tree in a blue shirt with a chainsaw and the tree shoots blood. So the number of, I mean, it's, it's this weird thing where on one hand I'm watching this going, why is freaking one of, to me, one of the most interesting directors around in that time period, basically just completely ripping off the evil dead, like blatantly <laughs> ripping it off. Yeah, the yeah. imagery, the, the end of the guardian. I mean, maybe I'm overestimating it, but for me, it feels like the entire end of the guardian is freaking going, yo, have you guys seen the evil dead? Let me show you a little bit of what it looks like. Cause that's I what it felt this. like. But, uh, but that was the best part of the movie. So I'm not when, like trying when, to... when did it, and this came out like 89. Oh, see, I thought this was like a recent movie. No, 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 I've no. never even, yeah, I've never even. No, this is an 80s movie. I just got the Blu-ray. You know, it's a Scream Factory. So. Oh, yeah, Blu-ray. I don't watch that, so. Dude, you need to get your shit. Get all your shit, put it in a bag, and get it together, all right? One day. Get your shit together. One day. <laughs> um, so that's that's the most recent horror thing I've seen that I uh, felt like was worth mentioning. I mean, if you, I, I, I feel like explaining that it ripped off Evil Dead kind of makes it sound like I'm like, so don't see it. I'm like, oh, it was fine. I mean, yeah, see it. If you yeah, if you want to see, see it, we're freaking, I mean, I just, I think the rest of the movie is supposed to be more atmospheric and creepy and some of it works and some of it doesn't. Yeah. There's a point where the couple's friend who I know, he looked familiar to me. He might've been on that show 30 something, but I don't know his name, the actor's name. And I yeah. it wasn't important enough to me to look it up. I just was like, oh, that guy. You just noted. Yeah. Yeah. He, he gets attacked by some dogs, and that shit was sick. That was cool. But leading up to the ultimate climax climax of the battle between Man the father and the tree, um, which is, I think, going on the same time as his wife is fighting the woman, and every time he fucks up the tree, she's... Her. Of course, of course. Yeah, she's at this point. She's like some sort of like druid impish goddess thing. I don't know. She's like immortal <laughs> because she fucks the tree. It's like a whole. She's fucking the tree. Oh, uh, there's a moment where it seems as if her and the tree are very intimate. Okay, so very evil deadish. Yeah, well, it's, but she's into it. Like she shows oh, so up at the tree. She tree gets sex. naked. The tree caresses her. She slowly turns into bark. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The Guardian, folks. It's from Scream Factory. I like Scream Factory. They do cool additions. I gotta, I gotta see this. There's cool. I mean, I would let you borrow it, but I know how you feel about Blu-ray, you motherfucker. I am, I'm, I'm a Cretan when it comes to Blu-ray. Literally a luddite. Literally. But then again, we do live in the Lehigh Valley, so you fit. It's not that bad. So, um, let's move on to our. Uh, uh, oh, also. What, oh, go ahead. I uh, wanted to talk real quick about he never died. Oh, so you saw it? He never yes, died. Go yes. for it. Uh, I was very, very hyped on it because the trailer looked amazing. Sure. And I saw it, and I wish that I had never watched the trailer. And the more I think about it, the more I don't think I like it. 
You don't think you like I it don't at think all? I like it. No. Oh my god! Because I, I, I fight I, you. I, I honestly think like it was like. I I think I like the feel of it. Sure. Like I especially like that the end the end fight scene in the bar. Maybe it was just the red curtains was very like David Lynchy, but the rest of it was just like okay. If this was anyone else besides Henry Rollins, no one would give a shit. Really, I kind of I appreciated the characterization. I mean, I think Henry Rollins was perfect, and I think they definitely wrote it for Henry Rollins. Yeah, but um, but I still think it worked. I was very moved by the character. I was very into what who he was. See, he was I mean, doing. that's that's like I I think that if I hadn't seen and here's another spoiler. I think if I actually you know what I'm not going to say who the character if because that's what really bumped exactly. You out. Yeah. Don't if you, if you haven't seen the trailer for this movie, don't watch the trailer for this movie. Just go watch the movie. Um, but I think like one of the problems I had like was that like in the movie all this inexplicable shit happens. Like, how do you have all this money? How do you have these pictures of you from like World War One? Who are you? And then he tells her, and she's like, and but like I already knew. So like anytime they would show like him having all this money and like him knowing like oh well I, during the Civil War I couldn't tell you what it was like because I was in China. I knew why he was the way he was and it just wasn't interesting to me. So there wasn't the feeling of a slower, there was no mystery to the yeah, slower it was deal. like, it, it, it kind of reminded me um, and I was worried about this comparison being made. Do you remember, I hope you don't, do you remember Dracula 2000 with Gerard oh, yes. Butler? So oh, yes. when that movie came out I was in high school and a bunch of my friends went and saw it and they were all like this movie fucking sucks. I'm like, well, why did it suck so bad? And they listed his fucking, and then, dude, Dracula's like, Judas Iscariot. And then I saw the movie, and I was just like, wait, that's the problem you had? Was that, like, everything else, like, like it's a fucking awful movie. But, like, I kind of, like, I normally, what I'm getting, I'm not going to say which biblical figure he is, although you could probably figure it out at this point. I kind of like when people do that shit. Like, I like the, that was the one thing I liked about Dracula 2000. I was like, oh, he's Judas Iscariot. That's actually pretty cool. They explain that's why he does all this and everything. Sure. So, like, I think that if I hadn't seen the trailer and they hadn't revealed who he was, it would have been like, oh man, that's actually pretty cool. And it would have made the rest of the movie sure in a, like a favorable light, favorable light for me. Yeah. I mean, I can only judge it based upon my experience, which all I knew about it was Henry Rollins is in it. He's immortal. That's I mean, all I know. I do. I, I did. I, I did <laughs> like the fact, like I, I did think it was like, kind of adorable how he was like struggling to gain some sense of like connection with his daughter and this other woman and I like the part where he goes into the diner at the end and that gang's there and like the diner owner's dead and the waitress is like just help us and he's like okay and then just kills everyone and he's like I need you to take me to the hospital is my my daughter and he's like pulling a fucking bullet out of his head and he's so just like no I have to pull it out because if I don't I'll get a migraine and he's like so like she hand me those pliers. Like I liked all that, but like everything else, it was just like there's there, it, like I felt it was lacking. But what about the freak out at the end, where he was like, "See, that's the thing is like, I, like when he was like yelling at the guy, he saw the whole like, yeah, who was that, the devil or God or? Uh, I I don't I think they left it unexplained. I think it's yeah, open to interpretation. Like, it, that would have been cool again if I hadn't known, if I hadn't thought something. Because like, like when I saw that guy and he was like, "Do you see him too?" and I was like, "It's probably the devil or God." It's one of the two. And then he's going to confront him at some point. Like, it felt very thin in story for me. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, uh. Man, I hate you so much. Hey, man, it's I'm fine. Just uh, we, I, this is a good place where we could say we'd love to hear what you think. Did you see He Never Died? Yeah, if you, if, and I, I would what love to hear. I would love to hear from someone who goes into it without knowing anything about the movie, without seeing the trailer. So if you are one of those people, please, please. 
please let me get what I want and get in touch with us and let us know. I might be a little biased because not only did I see it without seeing the trailer, but the filmmaker was there and I got to meet them and they're nice and yeah. you know, I'm fans of theirs. So. Uh, and also I already knew that, the, I don't know if this is going to happen, but they're in talks to like make it a TV show. So like they sort of presented the movie as almost like a pilot. Like this is the pilot episode of a show, um, which I don't think was the original plan, but I think that has already been kind of put out there, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that would be, I think that would be interesting. I don't know. They said that to the audience that they were thinking about doing some form of this thing. I don't know yeah. where they're at with that. I don't know if that's real, if that's sort of come about, but there was isn't definitely that, some discussion. And then what they, what Lynch's plan for Mulholland Drive was originally? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so this is actually a good good segue into our other section of the show, which is comments from the peanut gallery. Yes. Um, we got a question you said. That yes. You from to one about. Matthew Wes via Matt, Facebook. Matt, uh, Matthew also asked something over Facebook to Cinepunks. If you listen to the last episode, Matt of Cinepunks, we uh, basically kicked the ball. We kicked the can down the lane a little bit on that one because <laughs> I brought it up to Josh. And Josh was like, "I don't know, man. I got to think about that some more." So I was like, "Oh, uh, yeah, I, I, okay. I, I, I got to. I still have to check that one out." Yeah. Uh, Matt wanted to know what we thought about uh, Ash versus Evil Dead. Also, and if, if anyone, I'm just gonna do a real shout out real quick. If anyone's in Oakland, California, and someone looking to get quality tattoo work, you should go to FTW. You know what that stands for? Tattoo Parlor at For the Win. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the win, tattoo parlor. So yeah, that's where Matt tattoos, and he does good work. I know a couple friends who 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 have uh, who have some some tats, some sick tats by him. So if you're looking to become a tat daddy, Matt, and you live in Oakland, California, Matt's your man. He's vegan. He's straight edge. I mean, fucking, what more do you want? Um, so Ash versus Evil Dead. I like uh, how you just assume that everyone's on board. Yeah, why wouldn't they be? <laughs> I mean, fuck them if they're not. <laughs> uh, so, Ash versus, funny story about Ash versus Evil Dead. Uh, when that movie, or when that movie, when that movie. series debuted on like Halloween, sure, I was so intrigued by that pilot. Just watching it, yeah. it was so good. I was like, like, I think like a half hour late to a Halloween party because I, I, I stayed at my, I was hanging out at my parents' house watching it with my dad. Which my father and I spent an hour a week together, and that's to watch Gotham on Monday nights. Like I love my dad, but we have like little to nothing in common. Sure, but we were just like watching this, and I was like, "Fuck, I don't want to go to this Halloween party. I just want to hang out with my dad and watch Ash versus Evil Dead all night." The only complaint I have about it is I think at times it goes a little too heavy on hokey, which some people say, "Oh, but like Evil Original Evil Dead, that's what it was all about." But it's like I think at times at this show it goes a little too far sometimes. Really? Like, yeah, I mean, because there there are parts of that there's there are parts of that show that I think are genuinely fucking terrifying. Um, I forget which. I think it was the third or fourth episode. It's where they go to like the book dealer and they summon that demon, and it's like, sure, like that was so scary. That was so frightening. Like the the text, it was like text, it was like three D without wearing three D glasses. Let me pause. You real quick. Let's start off with your relationship to Evil Dead. The three main movies. Yes. Which, let's ignore the whatever that was. The yeah, yeah. Prequel remake, whatever the fuck. I liked it. It was fine. I, yeah. I don't. I just don't want to consider it. Fair, yeah. Gotcha. So those three movies. Do you have a preference if you're going to rank those three movies? Um, I would say that sheerly for nostalgic value, the first one probably holds like a special place in my heart. Sure. But I think technically. 
I think the second one reigns supreme. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. This is, and I saw a few people put this theory forward, and I think it holds water, which is that people who don't love Army of Darkness also have issues with the show because the show is trying to balance out. Because what you have with Ash is a character who has an arc that is almost entirely illogical. Yeah. The Army of Darkness Ash and the first... Now, let's be fair. With Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, they're the same movie. They just remade their own movie. Yeah. But still, the character's a little bit different in each thing. Yeah. And so what the show is trying to do, I think, is... Some people have suggested, at least, that it's an impossible task. Because you have two characters who are played by the same actor who are not actually the same character. Especially if you take the first movie. So the first movie... He's mostly a failure in some ways, but it's not quite ridiculous. Evil Dead 2, even though there are moments of cockiness, I mean, even think about like one of his most triumphant moments in the movie. It's when he chops off his own motherfucking hand. It's like one of his most glorious is like, ah, ha, ha, ha. Like clearly he's not a winner. But then you get to Army of Darkness and sure, he's a bumbler. Yeah. But he's not quite the man in Evil Dead 2 that he is in, in Army of no. Darkness. He's both a bumbler and the man. So I feel like with the show, they want to still have that dark undercurrent that was there in Evil Dead 2 and in Evil Dead. Yeah. But still have moments where Ash is like, I'm the fucking man. Because that's what yeah. we got in Army of Darkness. Yeah. So I think that's a hard balance to strike. It is. I mean, and, and sometimes it works. Uh, I, I mean, I, I love it was, um, I think it was like the second to last episode. Um, where he's like flirting with that cop completely sure. out of fucking nowhere. He's just like, they're like in a basement, like trapped by like those like survivalists. And he's like, so if we get out of this, you know, Hey, and she's like into it. And I'm like, that would never happen, but fuck it. Let's roll with it. Yeah. Like I'm totally, and then like, it, it, it I, I don't know. Like it, 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 there are just times where I feel like they'll be on the border. Like there was like in, in the season, in the, in, in, in the finale, the season finale where the demon is like using the book to like summon other demons sure. by having a character vomit them out. And the, sure. it's like horrifying. And Ash is watching it and he's like making these like fucking comments about like, oh, that's uh and I'm like, just shut up. Just like let this be pure horror right now. Cause it's really creepy and like it's funny because I feel like so first of all, there are people who never finished the show because it was too much they were with you, but it was too much for them to watch the show. Yeah, I th- a I number mean, of people were like, I hate it. It's too goofy. It's too funny. It is almost not hard at all. Like, there are a lot of people who hated it. Of the people who loved it, some people were not as stoked by the end. And I think it's for the things that you liked. Like, by the end of the season, they really started to up the actual fucking frightening aspect. Like, and there it, it are got, lots of frightening and shit. And that, that last episode is so dark. And, yeah. And even the, his character turn. I don't want to ruin it for people, maybe. Uh, no, I actually don't care. He chooses the wrong thing, basically, which if you are simply logically thinking through that character, a fucking course he does. Like, yeah. like, like he's put in a really tough position. It's, almost, it's sad and, almost. And even like, that hard decision he makes, he can justify it because it feels like he's doing it for someone else. Yeah. When it was just for himself, he could do it, but there's some part of him that just won't let him. Yeah. But once he's like, oh no, I'm doing it for them, that's just enough of an excuse. So I think it makes sense. But emotionally for the audience, it's a real fucking kick to the balls because you've been like, 
it feels like the audience has been led to a point by the last episode where you're like, okay, look, is he an asshole? Is he in some way doesn't make sense? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But he's going to do the right thing, even if he has to complain about it. And then that last episode, they're like, or not, fuck you. And yeah. I think, I think as much as I like that at one level, I get why a certain segment of the audience was like, wait, what? Yeah, this episode had almost no jokes. And then he chose the wrong thing at he the end. He fucks everyone, literally everyone over. And and like the whole earth. And he's just like, this will be fine. Yeah, which is Jacksonville. Like, um. Well, so I will. This is. I, I, I will. I think I disagree with you a little bit. I like some of the humor aspect of okay. it. Okay. I think my major issues are um, some of the characterization is just not like i think it takes a while for his sidekicks to have their own kind of personalities yeah i think um i'm okay with his joking but i do think it's they're really trying to strike this tough balance and i and i wish they would have him grow a little bit more in some ways because it does start to get a little old some of his like ridiculousness yeah like the first time they made they made the um what was the one joke where he's like pablo i'll tell you what we'll go in there We'll fight him, and we'll go get some chimichangas or whatever, you know? Yeah. And he's just like, uh, I'm not Mexican. He goes, that's the, now you're thinking, like, that's the spirit. Like, it was our, okay, casual, subtle racism. All right, we get it. He's an asshole. But then, like, they kept doing it, and it was just like. I'm okay with it, but it's not necessary. It's not yeah. necessary for the show. But this is this is where I actually, I'm with a few people. I saw a few people say this, and, I, and I'm. I feel this is actually true. I'm. I was really bummed out when they killed the cop. Like, yeah, they really started to build a relationship there, and then it's such. I mean, I get that there's the his both of his sidekicks are Hispanic characters, and I kind of like that. Yeah, but it's such an old horror movie stereotype that you kill off the black character. That when she was awesome and they were starting to have chemistry, I thought. Oh, cool, whatever. But then I should have known. I actually should have known the opposite, which is that anyone he cares about is probably going to die. Like that, yeah. that, that her chances of horrifying death were going up the more that she sort of oh, yeah. grew a character and sort of became a character on the show. But it still was like, ah, uh, uh, like it just. Uh, I'm just tired of it. It's not. It, it. I don't think it's. Again, we've talked about this on Cinepunks and uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it on here. I think you can be annoyed with something and not say that it's like racism, you know? So the, yeah. I talked about this with the new star the force awakens. I didn't really love the, the fact that, you know, we have, we finally have a main character other than Lando Calrissian who's black, but then his narrative is like very similar to like a slave narrative. Like, yeah. And I was just kind of like, it would be less obvious if you just put three or four more black people in the movie that it's sort of less, but when you have him, he's running to people to help him get away. They're all white. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like just yeah, yeah. put one more dude. So it's a little less awkward in the same way. It's like, Oh man, you finally gave us this super strong black female character just so she could be the one to die. Personally. Yeah. I would have killed off the other girl. Like I, like I, I, I think the, I forget his, what is his, what's the, uh, the male of the pair, pair. Oh, Pablo. Pablo. Yeah. I think actually he's more essential than she is of those two. She serves, I think she serves more as just like a love interest for for Pablo. Yeah. I just don't think her character's that well-written anyway. I don't think she really brings that much. And, uh, if there, if it has to be a trio, we can't have four. It has to be three. Yeah. I would have killed her off and kept Kept the the police officer. But I guess, 
it almost feels like what they're saying is Pablo is more of a human character. So Pablo and her should have, whereas Bruce Campbell's character doesn't get to have a love interest. Like that's not part of the show. And I get that, but I just wish then you had switched it. it in other words, yeah. it's not, like I said, I don't think anyone on the show is, you know, perpetuating white supremacy. It's just such a standard gimmick of like, also, hey, kill off the black one that I'm like, again, again with that, that's what we're going to do. I mean, in, in their, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, in their defense, killing her off, I think was kind of like, because if, I, I think if that other female character would have died, it wouldn't have. See, that's, uh, I, I guess that's mattered. true. And I guess that's, I guess in, in a way I'm also speaking against myself because I care because she was a strong character. So yeah. there's a part of me that wants to say, of course she had to die. I think it's just because she's that one character and yeah. that is such a stereotype in horror that I just, the people I saw who were upset were, you know, black female horror fans who were like, oh, look at this woman she's on the show it's so yeah. great she's such a great character she really brings and she really was like that her she's a great actress she you know her character really started to like become a part of the team like whatever so i don't again it didn't ruin the show for me but it was a thing where i was like really come on yeah oh god but then again they went even darker then with the next episode they were like oh did you think that episode didn't have a lot of jokes because this episode's not gonna have any jokes that's when they kill i, I love there was like those like three hikers they meet those three australian hikers yeah and it, it, i don't know if this was like self-aware of how like they treat like stock characters in horror movies but at one point like it's like pablo female hiker and they're like scared and bruce campbell's like look guys everything's gonna be okay i'm gonna come back for you Pablo, don't worry. And he's just like, uh, I didn't bother learning your name, but you don't worry. Like, he says that to her. Like, I don't know your name. You're not important. It'll be fine. And then she fucking dies horribly. And it's like, eh. Like, you know, <laughs> well, whatever. Like. I mean, literally, the, the, even the attitude of, of uh, the main characters to the hikers is like, oh, no, that's... Uh, oh, it's yeah. fine. Whatever. You know, yeah. like, there's not a lot of concern for them. Well, that being said, though, you're gonna watch season two, right? Fuck yeah, yeah. I think I think that's the thing is there are a lot of when I want to know Lucy Lawless, like I want to know what her fucking deal is, like. Well, and, and I think we both probably, if we really thought about it, had critiques of the show, but I, I think overall it works. Bruce, Cam I mean, if anything isn't working, it's not Bruce Campbell. Like, no, no. This show is showing to me. I mean, of course, he's playing the same role, which probably sucks for him. But it is reminding me that he can act. You know what I mean? Like he at he least can handle yeah, yeah. a character like this. You know, and what he's doing doesn't feel like he's taking up space. He's not phoning it in. No. Which, to be fair, I mean, has he? I, he hasn't done a lot of things. But when's the last time Bruce Campbell phoned a thing in? You know, like the Adventures of Briscoe County Junior. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like even his like weird cameo roles, he's always showing up and doing it yeah, you know, yeah. as much as I mean I, you, you could maybe argue that all of his convention appearances are found in I don't know I've never I, I've unfortunately never met Bruce I, Campbell you know I got to meet him very briefly because I did that Bruce Campbell horror film fest yeah, yeah. and I didn't meet him enough where I'm like I'm gonna defend him because we're buddies but just the interaction I had with him it was like eh, this seems pretty cool but he's also very Bruce like he's very much like hey you guys whatever alright I'm out of here like you know the 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 the, the there's an aspect of the Ash character that's Bruce 
taking his own self and yeah. and, and exaggerating it. Gotcha. You know? yeah, but it's yeah. not foreign. He's not like a quiet dude who remembers everybody's names and you know he's very much like, I'm in a room, there's people here. I'm on stage and I'm doing my thing. Like even if the room is five people. <laughs> He's like, oh, there's more people here than people I just know. So now I'm going to yeah. perform, and that's just how it's going to be, which is awesome. I mean, that's he's great good for at me. It. Like, yeah, I'm sure if I was someone who was wanting to connect with him on an emotional level, maybe that's a bummer. But I was just like, <laughs> yo, Bruce Campbell's a funny guy. He's yeah, a funny, funny guy. So, anyways, um, uh, did we have any other things? Did anyone else message us or uh, tweeted us that we need to reply to? No, I, I think that was just Matt wanted to know how he felt about Evil Dead. Yeah. So overall, I think we liked it. I think we like it. I think we would recommend it. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we're going to take a brief break here, and then we're talking about two movies. Uh, Justin, what are the two movies we're discussing? We're going to be talking about David Cronenberg's The Brood, the and Brood. Oh, how do you pronounce that guy's last name? Oh, Andre. Uh, so we're going to pronounce it Zolowski? Zolowski? We'll go with that. Zolowski? Here's the thing. I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. Yeah. I know its first name is Andre, even though that's not how I've learned to spell Andre, but that's, There's I like guess, the Polish. There's a J and a W in there, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the Polish spelling. It's fine. Whatever. No judgment. But the last name, I, I look at it, I've always heard Zolowski, Zolowski. I don't know. The, we, we watched the special features, and the person... We, we didn't watch all the special features, but we watched some of the special features. And the person who was pronouncing his name was pronouncing it in a way where I did not understand how he was getting that pronunciation. in a way no mortal tongue could wrap it around. <laughs> I'm sure it's the proper Polish yeah. pronunciation, but I think if we struggled the whole episode to pronounce it that way, it would just get distracting. So we're going to yeah. pronounce it like stupid Americans. Yeah. And, Zl- Andre you know, Zalowski. You know, if I'm sure if... Uh, Joe, Joseph Gervasi is a big possession fan, so he probably knows how to pronounce it. Uh, if Justin Miller's listening to this, he seems like the kind of dude that would know how to pronounce it. If for some reason Anthony Smirsky is listening to this, he uh, probably also, knows how to pronounce it. Andrew McArdle, huge possession fan. I'm, I, I guarantee fucking T, he's yeah at home pulling his hair out, being like, "That's not it's fucking Zuzak." Yeah, <laughs> looking Anyways. at his portrait of the guy on the wall. So we're gonna start with the brood. We'll take a brief break, and we'll be back to talk a little bit about David Cronenberg's. The Brood. They come from the unknown. And they're here now, hiding, waiting to strike. You can feel their presence all around you. Never before have you come this close to the edge of terror. Never before have you faced anything so strange and sinister, so bizarre and unnerving. Never until now. David Cronenberg's The Brood. Are you ready for me, Frank? I seem to be a very special person now. I'm in the middle of a strange adventure. 
I want to go with you wherever you go. Do you? Yes. Then look! The Brood. You can run. You can hide and hope they won't find you. But you won't escape. Once unleashed, The Brood will destroy anyone who gets in their way. David Cronenberg's ultimate experience in inner terror. Starring Oliver Reed and Samantha Egar. The Brood. They're waiting for you. All right, welcome back. And we have returned. Uh, so, uh... Like I said earlier, this week's episode, we're going to be, or this week's, this month's episode, or this whatever time period's episode, this episode. We, hey, uh, welcome to horror business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, so we're, 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 we're talking about, I guess they're vaguely love Vaguely lovey, the darker side of love, we'll say, because it's Valentine's yeah. Day, and, um, ugh. <laughs> they're basically, I mean, we're basically talking about two breakup movies that are also horror films. Yeah. Because they're, yeah, 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 yeah. They're they're horror films. They're breakup movies. Because what what better way to celebrate Valentine's Day than to talk about when everything with love goes wrong? Yeah, I mean they're 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 films that take divorce and somehow make it more horrifying. Yes, they take the well. That's yeah, yeah. That's 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 a perfect. Only David Cronenberg. This is his version of divorce. Yeah, sure. Children. So <laughs> yeah, tell us a little bit about the so, so our up, first movie up, is The Brood, nineteen seventy nine. David Cronenberg. Yep, it's uh The Brood is basically um, it's about this doctor played by Oliver fucking Reed. I love you, Oliver, <laughs> Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed, a real man. A back, real, back when, not a real back man. Back when men were men. Back when men were men, and they would go on like twelve day binges with Steve McQueen and throw up on each other. <laughs> Sorry, Oliver Reed, uh, Samuel Egger, and Art Hindle. It's Canadian because it's Cronenberg. Uh, it basically it's about like Oliver Reed plays this doctor who uh, he pioneers this technique by pioneers. I mean, he makes it up called was it psychoplasmosis? Psychoplasmics. Yeah, psychoplasmics. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, basically, like you take people who've endured traumatic events in their lives and then they manifest themselves physically and then you exercise them physically and. Yeah. Um, at one point, this the main character, his wife, um, he starts to worry about his little girl. His, the, the, he, and his, he and his ex-wife, have, his, his ex-wife, they have a little girl, and he starts to become worried about her. She's at, the wife is at the, she, at the she, she is facility, like, the whatever, she, the wooded area where they Oliver do Reed's this. house of horror. She's his prized pupil. And, um... And then all these like murders start to happen. There's all these like weird children present that are doing the murders. And then it, it turns out that the therapy was this woman. Oh, they also the woman had been abused as a child. And what she was doing was she was working out these like repressed emotions, and they were manifesting themselves as these fucking horrific malformed children who she was birthing. And then they were going out and killing the people who had wronged her. So, like, her mother gets killed in front of her daughter. That's, like, the saddest part is this adorable, like, poltergeist-esque little girl just witnesses this brutal shit happening, and it's just so sad. Um, and then... Um, There's a lot of opportunities for kids to get traumatized in this movie. Like, There's a lot of violence in front of a children. A teacher gets beaten to death in front of, like, five or six kids. 
Um, it's just awful. But like, I mean, it's just typical like Cronenberg, but like, it's like typical Cronenberg body horror. And I don't mean typical as in like, yeah, you've seen it once. It's, it's, it's good. But I mean, if you've seen a Cronenberg film, you know exactly what's going on in this movie. Like, well, it's definitely his exploring. Uh, one of the things with Cronenberg is this way that, uh, the internal and the external interact. So you yeah, manifest yeah. things. So uh, again, I think scanners is a good example of that. Uh, Videodrome, yes. obviously. Um, so it's, I mean, all of his films have that aspect of body horror, but I think sometimes when we say body horror, we, we're missing with Cronenberg, that weird psychotronic, you know, psychological, like there's this very seventies. There's something very new age about this movie. Yes. Yes. That Oliver Reed is, <laughs> Kind of like a guru yeah. in some ways. You go to his office and he steps out of the bathroom. Oh, I'm in the first day of a seven day absinthe binge. I never said I knew. I said she touched my shoulder. What do you want? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> There's so many things to talk about. It's a, I feel we're a little scattered. Let's focus. Where do you want to start talking about this? Um, I want to talk about uh, how even before I read that this was about David Cronenberg's divorce, it was in, not not about, it was inspired and affected by it felt like a very personal film sure it's not it's it wears emotions on the sleeve it comes at it even if he wasn't going through it personally you wouldn't write a movie like that if you were detached from the topic yeah it's very related and to it, it. it i mean as and as horrific as like as horrific as it as it is and it is horrific i mean you, you, the, you the main character is this is this uh is a father who his daughter just sees this i mean horrific stuff that he's he's trying to protect her from and he's trying to <clears throat> understand what's going on uh i mean it doesn't i don't mean to be all like hoity-toity it doesn't lose its sense of i mean i guess humanity like you can really fucking relate to that guy like yeah. i mean he knows like he, he he's his his wife had gone through some shit and hadn't dealt with it well and now i guess his daughter's at risk of him, is at risk for essentially going through this. I mean, she literally, it's, it's cyclical. I mean, the last scene is you see, Oh no, she's going to be just like her mother. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just assume people know we're going to be spoiling things yeah, at yeah. this point. So, but yeah, I mean, that's there. It's a, it's a deeply trying to, it's a deeply cynical movie in some ways, but it's the sort of cynicism. I mean, it, it it's, I guess what I want to say about it is it's more emotional than you expect David Cronenberg to be. Even if the characters, like the actual movie, when you're in the movie, is not that emotional. Uh, in fact, in some ways, Oliver Reed is such a weird fit because he's so emotive. He's all in yeah. every scene. He's just like, oh, blah, 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 blah. like he's just doing his thing. That it it's a weird instrument for Cronenberg yeah. to play, so to speak. Yeah. It's a weird, but it. The thing about the film is that even though, like any Cronenberg film, the interior of the film is very cold. The way he shoots is very cold. Uh, it feels physically cold. Like it feels it's very like clinical. Yeah, yeah. Everything about his style for most of his movies is is very clinical. In some ways, that doesn't mean there's not deep emotions underlying that style. Yeah. and I think that's present. I would make an argument for almost all of his movies, but I think this is a great example where even if he isn't. Uh, overly sentimental in the movie itself and the performances 
other than Oliver Reed, are not necessarily very intimate in some ways. Uh, they're more bombastic or very slight. You know, yeah. everyone who's not Oliver Reed and the woman having the brood is kind of just like there. They don't yeah. have the same chance to like take up space. But that's not a critique. It works for the film. Yeah, I mean, and it really gets at something like. In its clinicalness, it pokes at a place that's emotional, and it only does that because I think his emotions are present in it. Except the one, the one thing I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, like 100. percent Except the, the the one part that was like weirdly very emotional was the estranged father after his ex wife gets killed. He comes back and he's like, oh, "I'm going back to the old house," and he calls like his son in law up drunk. He's like, "I went back. I shouldn't have come back. I'm drunk." And he's like, and it's just like, it was just fucking out of nowhere because the mother, the grandmother was very like, mm, yes, it's time to go to bed. Like very up here. And then but like, I, I think you get the feeling that that's partly fueled by his alcoholism and it, and it, and it kind of in the structure of the plot suggests that maybe that's what was going on. I mean, in the film, because of what the mother who is in the clinic is doing, you know, well, she even character. says like, she's like talking to Oliver Reed you know, because the yeah. whole thing, the, the basically the whole thing is, is like, let's say that as a child, my mother had beat me and then my father had sat by and done nothing, which is what happens to the woman in this movie. I would go to Oliver Reed and I would talk to him as I was talking to my parents, which sounds, that's what I, therapy I think is. This is a, but I do think this is a real thing at the time. Like, I don't yeah. think it's completely, obviously the part where you would physically manifest your psychological trauma is a stretch. Yeah, but I mean, like, basically, that's method acting in a way. Like, evoke, yeah. getting a mode, like, so, but there, there, there's this there's this one part where she's talking, and his, go through it, go all the way through, don't stop, go all the way through, come to me, and then they hug, and it's amazing. Um, but there's the one part where she's talking to her father, and she's like, you know, like, you sat there and watched, you know, I told you and you did nothing. You, I told you what mommy was doing to me and you did nothing. So it's like, I, I, I think her father was more like a passive, like a weak man. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to morally judge on him too hard just because we're not given that many issues or not issues, details of what's going on. But I do think that's true and that his sentimentality for the wife is sort of what we're seeing that uh, in some ways her mother who abused her was also like the dominant emotional force yes. and that you get the feeling of him leaving was probably because of that, that she sort of ruled, you know, and yeah, that's yeah. part of the trauma. Um, but I do think there is also something cold to that because that one moment where he's being emotive and he's connected, whatever we know something bad is going to happen to him. One and of the then brood when is, it happens, it's so brutal. Yeah. It's so unapologetic. It's so, it's so brutal. <laughs> Brood. It's all. so brood. Oh, <laughs> dude, when you laugh that hard, your own jokes. It's not a good look, dude. I don't. I don't. <laughs> hey, I make these jokes for me. Yeah. Okay. This is this is not a costume. So there's. I mean, it's a. Uh, there is that aspect to it, and 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 I. What I can't tell with the way Cronenberg has Oliver Reed in the film, I can't tell whether Cronenberg uh, is basically. There's an anxiety about this kind of psychobabble about this yeah. sort of thing, but I can't tell if it's critiquing it. And I and I and I, I wonder if that's like the wrong question in some ways because Cronenberg is perhaps one of the least moral filmmakers in the sense of he portrays awful things to you while often not telling you anything about them. So it's well, like, I mean, I, I would I, I I would say that I mean, if we look at some of his other works like Scanners. 
I would say that he he might be making a judgment on, as you called it, psychobabble. Um, he might be critiquing these empty practices that are doing more harm than good. I mean, the one character who blows it all up, and he he's the um, there's a fucking technical term for it, uh, like a character trope who's like he's the one who's like, no, I'll show you what's really happening. He has fucking cancer because that's that because he was talking to this guy and his. That manifested itself as cancer. So, I, I mean, may, maybe Cronenberg is saying, like, yeah, these, like, new age gurus out there who have these, like, they might be doing far more harm than good by, you know, exposing things that ought not to be exposed. Like, I don't know. I think that's too specific. I think, I think, um, just because in all of his movies, he's always pushing boundaries and there's always this question of advancement despite morale. I mean, think about this is the other thing when I'm thinking about scanners. The triumph in Scanners is really fucked up where he puts his mind in the other guy. Yeah. And I, I I don't think it's clear in Scanners that uh, that Michael Ironside and then the other gentleman he's fighting, who's supposed to be the main character. Who is completely forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> that it's not clear. It's clear that they have a conflict and that you're probably rooting for him but his methods aren't that much better in no, some no. ways. So in other words, when I'm thinking about, let's focus then on the brood, uh, I think there's more of a feeling that this thing is, that there is something to it, that there's something real there. Like well, even obviously. though obviously psychoplasmonics is not a real thing in the world, but the idea that our internal states are not irrelevant, which again is an interesting yeah. you know, stance for a director who in some ways feels again, very clinical and cold that he then is making this movie in which these internal emotional turmoils sort of manifest themselves externally. And I'm sure there's people who know way more about Cronenberg who are able to put this in the larger scheme yeah. of things. But I know enough to say this is a thing, you know, it's in Videodrome. You could even say it's a little bit in the fly and how the, the fly sort of happens, but the fly uh, is also about transformation in a way that I think, you know, it's clearly in this case, with these uh, little children that are murdering the brood, things the broods. with 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 the broods, the broodies that this has gone wrong. But you don't get the feeling that Oliver Reed is a villain. Like Oliver uh, Reed is like. Here's the thing. Okay, go ahead. Okay, <clears throat> I totally got the feeling he was the villain up until like the last fucking thirty seconds. He's in the movie when all of a sudden he's just like, "No, I'm going to protect this little girl." Like, you're no, you're not. Like, like you've done. You've done nothing through this whole movie but obstruct this guy trying to, like, solve the problems. You've sent these people – You like, there's the one character, Mike, in the very beginning. is like, your father should have named you Michelle. Ah, and the guy's like, daddy! Like, you've cast that man out of the world with nothing, and he clearly depends upon you. Like, you're a shitty human being, and then, like, all of a sudden you're like, no, I better get this gun that I've been holding the whole movie and go kill the brood and protect this little girl. Like – that ties into something else I want to talk about in a little bit, but just keep that in mind. Like, let's, I'll, well, let's well, let's, okay. I I completely disagree. Okay, I think that he is ambitious. Okay, and that he's pushing a boundary, and that as part of that, um, he's taking chances that are maybe irrational. Okay, that are uh, not moral. But again, I mean, uh, it makes me think of. Um, Slither, or They Came From Within. Okay. One of Cronenberg's. It's not his first, first movie. It's one of his early movies. Yeah. Uh, it's not clear to me in that movie 
that the aliens that are taking over the planet that your heroes are fighting the whole movie are really that bad. Like when in the end where the humans lose and they just have to give up because everyone is just in it now. Yeah. You kind of get the feeling that Cronenberg's like, yeah, and that's good. It's better this way. We should just do it this way. So like in uh, part of my feeling with the brood, I'm watching this a, it's not clear that his motivation for sending all the patients away is what Michael thinks it is. So yeah. Michael says, well, she's more successful and that's why. Whereas it could, it is, there's nothing in the movie that says Oliver Reed made that decision because it helped him. He might have actually thought, well, we do have a barn full of these murderous little children. <laughs> okay. Maybe we should send the patients away so they don't get murdered by the children. Okay, touche, touche. Uh, I do think he is not, again, and I'm not sure that it ever is worth talking about right and wrong in a Cronenberg movie per se, at least in his earlier films. But he's certainly not right either. Like he's taken risks. People have paid for that. And I think he just under, like a lot of people in Cronenberg's films, he underestimated his impact. So with Videodrome, they think they can control Videodrome. And and of course they can't. Yeah. You know, same thing with scanners. We can control the scanners. Oh wait, obviously we we can't. So the, the brood in that way, I think Oliver Reed, because he is clearly uh, the only true man in the world and is this thick, <laughs> masculine powerhouse. He will save us He all. assumes that with the power of his own mind, granted, even though he's so physically imposing and he can clearly beat up every person in the world. I love only that this is a love letter for you, from you to Oliver Reed from Beyond the Grave. Okay, here's the thing about Oliver Reed. <laughs> there has never in my mind been an actor, that I know of at least, so handsome who is so big. He's just a big man. He is. He's never been every like Hollywood heartthrob is like a thin wee little dude. And then you've got Oliver Reed who like you you don't want to say he's fat. I at least not no. at least at this stage in the 70s, 60s and 70s and what I've seen him in, he's not fat, but he's never small. He's imposing. You're, you're always looking at him going, "Where does he buy his clothes? Yeah. Where does he find <laughs> things to fit him?" Yeah. Like if I was the costume designer on this movie, I'd be like, "This guy, really? God yeah. damn it. I would All right, let's <laughs> let's figure it out." Especially because the whole movie, he's wearing very tight turtlenecks. I want, yeah. I love how the one scene he just walks out in a fucking bathrobe, yeah, like a short, like a like above his knees, like is. To be fair, we did notice in that particular scene that Oliver Reed needed more leg days. He yeah, could have he could have spent more time doing squats. Yeah, he could have done some squats. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a he's definitely an upper body guy. He is. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, God bless him. It works. But I think it's it, it's not just his physical size. It's that you take that physical size, you inject it with a guy who every role. I mean, I've only I've only seen him in. I haven't seen any of his more. Let's say I don't want to say legitimate, but let's say more mainstream power. I've only seen him in weird genre stuff. You've got to see Gladiator. Oh, I've seen Gladiator. Okay, I've seen Gladiator, but I don't even remember him that much in Gladiator per se. But I mean, like his of his older material, it's mostly horror films. Yeah, yeah. He did a lot of like Hammer stuff, didn't he? Yeah, or weird. Just some, just some other things. I mean, I actually I had him as IMDb, but so what I've seen him in is always things in which he doesn't need to be who he is, which. Everything he does feels Shakespearean. Like everything he says, he's always so it's his voice is booming. Like yeah. I'm sure every time he's on set, they have to turn down all the mics. You know what I mean? Like he just <laughs> seems like loud. And like me, I'm a loud guy. But yeah, I mean, so you know, let, let me see. So I, of course, the first things when I think of him are burn offerings, 
the brood and uh, the devils. So of course, like being in the devils, I mean, that's a huge impact on my brain right there. But I mean, he was in a few movies like uh, blood in the streets, the three musketeers. I don't even remember him in the three. He was also in the four musketeers, my lady's revenge, Uh, Mahler, the new Spartans, Tommy, uh, burn offerings. Like I said, the big sleep. I don't remember him in the big sleep either. Um, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, Condor Man, Venom, Two of a Kind, Spasms, uh, let me see here, Black Arrow, Captive, Gore, I mean, I guess he's mostly done genre films. I would actually, this is, oh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, a movie that had a huge impact on my life. So uh, I do think, A, that we need to, now that I'm looking at this list, have an Oliver Reed just marathon. Ten Little Indians. Uh, So all that to say, the things I've seen him in in my life have never – oh, of course, Women in Love. Amazing. Anyways, uh, the things (laughs) – I'm sorry. I love Oliver Reed. Uh, The things I've seen him in never required him to be who he is. Yeah. Someone else could have done that role with a lot less of his Oliver Reed-ness. Yeah. So seeing him in this film, I mean, again, any – you could have done this role maybe with like a schmarmy sort of like maniacal. But because everything Oliver Reed does, every time he's on screen, I get both comfort and menace. <laughs> In this particular character, he's yeah. always like, we're on dangerous new horizons. And you're like, okay, so is that good? Are you going to hold me or are you going to kill me? Like what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't really know. Uh, well, you were about to transition to another idea oh, related it, to this. It was just um, – so how I said how like I, I felt that like Oliver Reed w- was like kind of like uh, salvaged at the end and uh, oh right and how his wife remained monstrous the whole time yeah I mean I I again of the monsters though of the sorts of monsters you can have in a movie. There are parts where she still feels sympathetic. It's really the end, the climactic end, Which, where yeah. she's willing to kill the daughter as a way to get at him. So that's what I'm saying. Now, given that this, um, I, I should have looked up the source that this was about. It was just on Wikipedia that he was going through a divorce at the time. Cronenberg's uh, treatment of like female characters. Sure. Um, now, one could say, yeah, but he, you know, fucking Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. Like how was that? How was how was that not a monster? Sure. Or like even, I don't know. Like James Woods in like video. Like you know. Like, but I was like thinking about this, and it always seems like all of like Cronenberg's like monstrous male characters are redeemable in some way. Like, even like Oliver Reed, who may or may not have done some horrendous shit. In the end, you're like, oh, he 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 does a good thing. Jeff Goldblum in The Fly turns into a literally turns into a monster. In the end, he is not redeemed per se, but like you still feel sympathetic for him. Yeah. But like you look at like this and the, the wife is like so fucking monstrous. And I, I don't, I, I felt no sympathy for her because I felt she was like barely human. And it was like, I, I felt that he was portraying her as like damaged and he was portraying like the, even her parents, the abuse she had endured was at the hands of another woman while the man stood idly by and, you know, did nothing. And then it was like the woman was willing to kill her own daughter to spite her husband. I mean, and given that this, if this is semi, like a semi-autobiographical film, like what does that say about Cronenberg's view of 
like female. I mean, like you look at like other like monstrous females, like in Dead Ringers. Like what starts off the whole thing is like a woman with a deformity, and that drives two men into like insanity. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I mean, I I am definitely willing to say that Cronenberg, um, at least until. Man, actually, I'm looking at his filmography now to try. Maybe Existence is the, the, you know, in other words, I don't know that his female characters are fully realized in a lot of films. But, okay, and his, like, They're, like or, like, Rabid, like, Rabid, like, the start of a fucking plague is a woman. Like, I mean, it just, it, it, it makes you, it, 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 it gave me pause about David Cronenberg's portrayal of women. Well, I think he's definitely a very... Um, male filmmaker in a sense, yeah, and that he's focused on that, or at least in these early films, it, it, it's hard because he's still making movies, and I haven't seen all of them. I've I've seen actually a surprising amount of his movies, um, that I realized before I looked at this list. But uh, I I'm willing to admit I'm not sure that he has strong female characters that he's interested in fully realized yeah. human complicated women. You know, maybe a dangerous method gets a little bit close, even though she is very objectified in the movie. She chooses, there's a lot more agency. Yeah. Whereas for example, Blondie in Videodrome, she's almost entirely just an object, or at least as the movie goes on, you know, yeah. maybe she has a little bit of her own. I'd say maybe the strongest female character in his older films, might be from the fly. Gina Davis, yeah, yeah. Even, Gina even, Davis might be the even best. that. Like when she goes in to get a, like when she be, she finds out she's like pregnant and she goes to get an abortion and he fly he he flies in and like it it, it it's very like possessive like. Yeah, but I just think that works. I don't. That doesn't make me question him as much. I do want to say though, there's some things where I don't really remember. So, for example. It's been a long time since I've seen M Butterfly, so I don't know. I haven't, unfortunately, I've never. I want to see it, but yeah. So M Butterfly, like there's a there's a a few '90s movies. 1993's M Butterfly, 1996's Crash, which don't confuse with the weird. Don't confuse with the weird race movie that sucked. Yeah, but Crash is the movie where people have crashes and then that gets them off. (laughs) Yeah, they fuck. Uh, And then Existence, which is one of those films I rented. I had no idea when I rented. I just, you know, 90s, you just rent things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. sounds cool. You watch it and you're like, oh, this is not cool. Yeah. Uh, I've been told if I return to it, I might like it more. But at the time, I guess I just didn't know what to expect. So in those particular, those three movies, I don't know what to make of the female characters, actually. Okay. I don't have a clear enough memory to say. I, I remember them being there, maybe being more realized. But then you go forward, Spider, I just don't like Spider You don't like Spider? Much. I don't... <sighs> I'm sort of ambivalent on it. Okay. I love a history of violence, yes. but I can see what people say. The female character thing, not not taken care of in that movie. No. That doesn't resolve anything. Uh, Eastern Promises, again. I, I think it really might be, at least between the fly, from the films I've seen, it's fly to a dangerous method. And a okay. dangerous method, in my view, and I could be wrong, has a lot more development as far as a a female character of some kind again. And I I don't think this means Cronenberg is a bad director. I mean, sometimes you tell the story, you know, exactly. So you, you, you know, he feels more comfortable with male characters. Fine. But I do think even in a male centric story, you bring up a good point. You don't, at least for me, I don't want to see story after story where not only is it male centric, but then 
the f- women in the movie are the sources of evil. You know? Yeah. To be fair, we're being very gender normative right now because obviously things are more complicated than we're talking about. But yeah, yeah. At least in the in his in the film so far, especially actually now that I'm thinking about it, that would be especially true of M Butterfly. So <laughs> that's exactly what M Butterfly is to some extent related to. Um, I'll be fair though. I haven't seen Cosmopolis. I haven't seen maps to the stars. So I don't know what those sort of change, but if we're looking at those early movies, I think you have a strong point. I, I, I could argue that maybe shivers doesn't work in that way because in a sense, what's interesting to me about shivers is that the aliens have to be transmitted to new hosts orally. So when the people are attacking humans to give them the alien yeah it looks like they're just trying to make out yeah yeah so then at the end of the movie when everyone is infected and there's just the one guy trying to get away it really feels like you should be rooting that last scene it's like everybody just wants to love man and you're trying to get away just let them love you yeah yeah, yeah. just because it's a gross parasite that infects you who cares yeah that sounds great just be part of the love it man <laughs> and uh and and you know I it's not the most original perspective on that movie per se, but I do think that's what's going on. So I think with Cronenberg, there is some extent where I want to look for opposites or look for. So there's a question for me about, yes, she is the monster and, and, and I do worry about her sense of agency. He portrays her as broken. Yeah. But again, I don't think it's a judgment on her. I think his portrayal of her as broken is meant to say that it's not her fault. Okay. That that in some sense, all these other people, and even the husband, even though things fall apart, there's no justification of him. We never see why their marriage falls apart. Exactly. We see yeah. that she's hurting and that she's broken and she might even be crazy. But is that enough reason to say, and therefore he's great? Divorce. Yeah. 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 I don't know. He might be awful for all I yeah, know. Yeah. I don't, but, but again, I'm also reaching a little bit. I will say randomly between the brood and scanners, 1979 fast company. I don't know anything about this movie. I've never seen it. I don't know anything about it. I don't want to get us distracted from it, but, uh, if somebody wants to comment to us about Fast Company. I would I love know. to know more about Fast Company. Yeah, I mean, we might need to see if we can find a copy of it just because I want to know about it. But, um, yeah, and I don't think things get resolved much into the future. You know, Scanners is very uh, – I, I mean, there's a, a – you know, the the females uh, in that movie, the young woman uh, – what is her name? I want to find her the actress's name because I think she's great. Is that Jennifer O'Neill as Kim, I think, is who I'm thinking of? Yeah, that looks like that looks like her. I think she is great in Scanners, but it is still it ends up being a movie about two men vying for power, even yeah. though she plays a role in it. So uh, let's. I I, I want to hit on we we hit on one of the things I want to talk about, which was the overwhelming power of Oliver Reed. But another thing, <laughs> but another thing I wanted to talk about about this movie. I can't think of another movie I've seen recently that was so 70s. Yeah, we were talking how like how just like <laughs> didn't you I, I believe you were saying that the seven like the look and feel of it gave you like anxiety. Yeah, well, first of all, I and I've said this before at other places too. I 
any supernatural, if it's a ghost story, a possession story, or anything having to do with psychic powers, or, yeah. it should be set in the 70s. I don't want to see any modern haunting. There's just two. Once you've got touchscreen phones, fuck a ghost. Like, I yeah, just yeah, feel yeah. like it doesn't even work anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm not interested. But everything in the 70s, I'm like, man, they didn't even have cell phones. Everything was weirdly colored. Everyone just didn't know. There was this feeling that, like, LSD had changed the world, that no one knows what the government's <laughs> doing everyone yeah, assumes yeah. the cia i mean the 70s for for people who are younger who are listening to this who don't you know I, I, granted i grew up in the 80s so i'm not trying to claim being older than i was but there's a sense that in the 70s all this shit came out all of a sudden there were terrorists everywhere all of a sudden it was becoming really clear that the government was like doing things that we didn't feel good about so you know since the beginning of the century the government was overthrowing you know u.s government was involved in overthrow of third world countries and you know yeah, yeah. controlling political rise so that that's you know that was out there but in the 70s it was like you could see it on tv like you just heard about it like yeah. oh that guy that we hate just happened to die and the cia just happened to be nearby <laughs> that's weird you know things like that became so i i really think of the 70s as a chaotic crazy time now granted again i grew up in the shadow of that i grew up in the 80s so it, we were sort of coming out of that and uh, uh, there's also, to some extent, the retroness of Canada. Like, yes. if you watch Scanners, Scanners is a 1981 movie. It's an 80s movie. Yeah. It feels still 70s. A lot of the fashion and the style, the, the decor. Architecture. The architecture the, is like the selling point. Like, Yeah, the, it looks it looks like... That he, fucking playground was just like... Oh, gosh. <laughs> it, Scanners looks like he started filming it like the day after he finished filming The Brood. Like nothing yeah. has changed. Uh, granted, that's only a two... I guess in three years, not that much changes. But I, I don't know. It, the point being is that I was telling Justin, I, I have this image of... I mean, this partly comes from like reading X Men and things like this. Like, I just picture like Canada is like this retro place where there's all these psychics with shotguns shooting each other, and there's always some guru science. There's always a scientist who's like part psychologist, part biologist, part psychic guru, fucking new age, whatever. He's always got someone who he's giving telekinesis or pyrokinesis or whatever. It's always either a corporate thing underneath. Like everything in the 70s is like a corporation is doing experiments and it's fucked up and it's going to ruin the world. Yeah. Or a cult is in the woods somewhere and they've broken the barriers to another dimension and we're all going to die. Or the government has created <laughs> a race of super soldiers and even though they sent a bunch of guys out in puffy vests which sawed off shotguns to shoot those super soldiers, the soldiers got away and we're all going to die. Yeah. Uh, it's always, there was a brief, and I think in this sense I'm also conflating a little bit of the early 80s with this too. There was a storyline in Dazzler once that was about- Is these, that why you brought up Dazzler? When we yeah, watched? yeah, yeah. There's a storyline in Dazzler where these humans had done experiments themselves to make them like mutants, but they could only activate their powers with dazzler so she was like kidnapped to this and it was like this weird part cult part corporation thing and they needed mm. dazzler's light to bring out their powers and all of it all of the imagery in that run at the time and granted i read this when i was like a kid but at the time it made me think of scanners and the brood which i had seen and so i just have this image of the 70s everything in the 70s I, you you could add this onto this um 
altered states. Okay, yeah. That's, you know, again, we're at school, we're doing experiments, we're in the isolation chamber, all of a sudden, we're breaking the barriers of reality, and you know? we're monkeys, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just feel like there's a there's this, like, weird undercurrent that there's this psychological metaphor. By the... It, it, it exists a little bit in the early 80s, especially in comic books. It's it's like people watch Altered States and then work that into their scripts for their comic books. By the you know, but by the late 80s, everything is fucking cocaine, machine guns, drug dealers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still that conspiracy angle, but it, it's it's a little bit rougher. It, in in other words, is that all that soft brown? Everything in the 70s was like orange and brown, and you could just picture being in a shag rug and reaching into another universe, which of course would lead like a demon, or your brain would melt. Like all of it is bad, and none of it's good. You know, there's this like residual. Whereas by the 80s, the later 80s, it's like between the candy craziness of Spielberg where everything is just like fun and good and life is good again and then like the darker cocaine fueled edge of that that, that's all you get I'm sorry what's the darker cocaine fueled edge of Spielberg no I mean of the 80s (laughs) okay uh, everything everything I think of from the 80s missing this facet of Spielberg everything I think of from the 80s is is like either this Spielberg celebration of joy which unintentionally fueled Reagan's psychotic going back to this made up fifties capitalism. Yeah, yeah. That Spielberg unintentionally was like the dream we all had to ignore what was actually happening. Or it's in that grimy, you know, like if you compare some of these narratives in the eighties, it's like everyone is good or everyone is doing Coke and shooting Uzis at each other. And it's like those two things coexisting, you know? And yeah, there's no room in either Pleasantville or Coke fueled Miami for the shag rug psychic. Like that's not a gotcha. thing. Okay. You know, it doesn't happen there. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little unfair because I'm, I'm sort of tying in Firestarter with that, which I think was more of an eighties movie. <laughs> Cause the part, py- there was a, like a, like a pyrokinesis sort of thing there. And there's a lot of that yeah, kind of men in helicopters and driving around psychics and drugs. And, yeah. yeah no, the experiments. I but I think that was more eighties. So I'm being a little unfair, but in some sense, Firestarter, to me, in the movie version, feels like a movie about the '80s dealing with the '70s. It's yeah, like excess of the '70s. It's like in the '70s we give all these psychic drugs and they get all these powers, and then by the '80s it's like we got to kill all these fuckers, man. Reagan's in charge now. We yeah. can't get away with this shit. You know, all we're gonna do is trade drugs for coke to Iran to get whatever. And that's yeah. just how it's gonna be. And then inject obviously the urban areas with crack because. And, and, and spread AIDS. Yeah, that's Jesus. what the government does. <laughs> I guess we got a little off the topic of brood. No, no, of the way, brood. I mean, but I think it's obviously I'm I'm being somewhat silly and going crazy, but all these things are in my head a little bit because of watching movies like this. And the brood is so brown and orange and yellow. It's, I love it though. I love that. Oh that, no, that, it's that, great. That, like, that's what you want for that movie. Yeah. Like, if you took that same movie and put it in our current Ikea-fueled nightmare. Fuck that. It wouldn't work. Nope. It literally, something about the decor and architecture is part of what makes that movie work. Had, and maybe that's my nostalgia, but it's I really feel that. No, no. I mean, I I uh I mean just speaking purely on 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 that that the, the architecture that was I had, I had a girlfriend in college whose apartment had wood paneling. Like the 1970s, 80s wood paneling. And every time I was in there, I felt like vaguely uneasy because I was like, this is like this is like a throwback. This shit hasn't changed in 30 years. Yeah. And it's like, I, I see what you mean when you're, when you, when you're talking about like 
being distressed by. <laughs> There's just something. I just see that setup. That that. I mean, I'm sure at the time it was very modern, but that now retro thing. And I just think something bad's going to happen. Yeah, and it's going to be terrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if I was older or younger, I wouldn't feel that. But watching it, and you know, anyway. So, as a man who has experienced your own fair share of heartbreak. Do you think The Brood was a cathartic film for uh, Cronenberg, or was it only adjacent to his own pain? I would say in the sense that if it made... Uh, Talking to your mic a little more. Oh, sorry. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe it, it could have... I, I I guess it it may have way have been it may have been a way for him to justify to to paint his ex partner as not so terrible now that she'd gotten these things out of her. Although maybe I mean again it fucking ends with him choking her. No, it's definitely you know a, what I mean? like it, it's it, 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 it's I think in that way it's a complicated ending because whatever their problems are they've clearly passed something like it on to their daughter. Yeah, and he does like kill her and it's done it's done in a way that makes it feel like murder i mean she's the monster here right she's the one who's literally a monster in that she's her very physicalness has changed and then emotionally she's a monster because whatever pain whatever sentiment you may feel for me at least completely goes out the door when she's willing to kill her own child just to hurt him yeah so like she definitely goes over the line but at the same even when he's killing her you don't think like oh he's getting her you're going oh it's not like he's killing a monster. You it's know what I mean? brutal. It's, it's not like at the end of brutal. fucking Pumpkinhead. Yeah. It's not like at the end of Pumpkinhead when you're, they're killing Pumpkinhead. You're like, that's a shitty example because he's a sympathetic He's a sympathetic character. It's not the end when they're at the, uh, again, I'll bring Event Horizon, where they're blowing up the Event Horizon. They're not killing a monster. It still felt like a person killing yeah. another person. Yeah. And it still felt like, like as he's killing her, he's not just like, this is the only way I have to kill her. He's begging her, make them stop. Make them stop. Like, it's almost like he's hoping that there's still like a there can be like a turning point where things can go from being hellish and chaotic back to well and i guess in that way it's very related to in some people at least experience of divorce that like you have this hope that what was once the way you were with each other will come back and in this case obviously partly because she's manifested little monsters that are murdering people yeah but just even like the uh the symbolism of that is like, no, like he has to give up. He has to move on. Yeah. He has to murder her in some sense. These horrible things about her are literally out in the open and they can't mm. go away. Like, well, I think there's probably a lot more even with all that, that we could say, but, uh, in the interest of time, we're going to wrap it up there. Let's just say, I don't think you have to care about divorce to care about the brood. No. I think it's a, it's actually a pretty functional monster movie. Yeah. But it, I think if you watch it, I certainly wouldn't recommend someone who's dealing with those emotions still to be Fuck like, no. let's toss the brood on. I would say, I would say if you've, I would go as far as saying if you're someone who's experienced abuse as a child, don't watch this movie. That's true. It's <laughs> like, not, it's not a sentimental movie towards children, which is, a, it's harsh. It's, it, it's definitely like it, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's, it's not a very, uh, not a very optimistic movie at all. Did you like it though? Do you feel good about it? I I love that. I mean, it's it's it, it, awesome. It uh, I mean, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to like the way you know Cronenberg, like all of his all of his movies, they all have that look, you know, due to nineteen seventies, <laughs> early eighties Canada. It's a good look, and I, I I love his uh, 
his making things monstrous subtly or otherwise. Yeah. Because I mean, even in the end, when you see her brood sacks, it's not like, it's not like I keep going back to the fly. It's not like Jeff Goldblum, the fly where in the end, he's literally a fucking six foot walking fly. That's like, fuck Jesus. It's just a woman who has like sacks on her, but you're still just like revolted by it. And it's still effective enough to be like, she's now something other, other than human. And I, I've always liked it about Cronenberg is that he takes, uh, I mean, it's body horror. It's, it's what it is. Like, I, I don't feel it needs to be really explained. Like, it's, you know, what body horror is. It's, well, I like, do think there's, but I think you could say that there is underneath Cronenberg's general desire to sort of titillate us with horror, you know, like that body horror grossness. There's always this, like, pushing the audience a little bit. Yeah. There's also, like, thought there. It's not just about that. Like every single movie, there's something also going on. Yeah, it's not. Really it's not. It's it, it, the the gross out stuff that he goes for, and he doesn't always push the limits when it comes to grossing someone out. They're always secondary. It's more about he's telling a story about someone who has become altered in some way, and and to highlight that, it often manifests itself physically. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I would say that, like you know, you look at a movie like uh, again, like Dead Ringers isn't. It, it's not one of his more blatant movies when it comes to you know people becoming something other than what they start out in the beginning of the film. But like sure. at the end of those movies, they're the two characters are definitely uh, fucked up and weird, and they're not. Yeah. They don't. They don't turn. They don't grow wings or a third arm or a fucking second head. But they're they're definitely monstrous. I would say. But maybe they should. I would say that they should. <laughs> uh, I think that's a good transition to uh, to our next movie. Yes, the other film we watched is a little movie called Possession, by, starring yes, and what was Andre Zalowski. Andre Andre Zalowski starring um, Sam, Sam Neill. Neill and yeah. what is the actress's Isabella, name? Isabella Isabella. Talk about it. I'll find. I'll, All right, I'll, I'll so find it. yeah, we're gonna uh, transition to our next <laughs> film, Possession, which I think. Uh, it's interesting that we picked two films that not only are both related to loss, to divorce, to heartache, but also both involve transformations, Isabella, strange transformations. Isabel and Johnny. Uh, starring Isabel and Johnny and Sam Neill, as well as a variety of other weirdos. Uh, yeah, so here we'll take a pause and you can hear a little bit from the trailer for Possession. Desire, there is a darkness. Well, that's why I'm with you. Because you say I for me. Love opens to absolutely unknown horizons. <laughs> Isabella Johnny. The internationally acclaimed actress in her most explosive, controversial role. <laughs> Sam Neill. Heinz Bennett. Two men. And a woman no man could ever possess. <laughs> Special visual effects by Academy Award winner Carlo Rambaldi. Terror. Inhuman ecstasy. 
wasn't even cured. back <clears throat> hello uh so zolowski's possession when did you first see this movie uh, i saw this movie about two or three years ago um my friend andrew was in from i think he was living in chicago at the time chicago or philadelphia anyway he was in the lehigh valley his parents still live here and he knew that i am a gigantic sam neill fan so he he had asked, have you ever seen Possession? I was like, no. He's like, it was one of Sam Neill's first films. Oh, I'd love it. And I remember watching it, and he had described it similarly, how my whole thing of like, oh, this is a woman fucking an octopus. He's like, yeah, his wife. And I'm like watching this, and I'm like, okay, this is cool. It's kind of like a spy movie. Like Heartache, Heinrich shows up. And then like you see like the thing in the fucking room, and you're like, okay, this is... And it just gets really weird. Um, do you want to tell? Let's let's do a little run through. How would how would, someone's asking you? Well, what happens? What's the what what, what happens in the film? Fuck it, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like like so. I'm gonna do my like. Okay, so Samuel is a spy. Okay, let he's he he has a shady job, which <laughs> with, with vials of liquid, secret liquids. Like it it, it seems like it's likely. Or at least the most likely that he is some kind of spy, but yeah. they never corporate espionage, fully... government, something. It it takes place in some third. There's a wall. I don't know if it's the Berlin Wall. Yeah, they filmed in Berlin. I yeah, think that is the Berlin Wall. So it's like he he's away for a lot of times, and he he, fi- he his wife tells him like she wants to get a divorce, and he finds out that there's she's seeing someone else, and he goes just insane. And I love how there's that part where it's like after like things, and then so he goes insane, and then like things start spiraling out of control. Like people start dying. His wife has a breakdown, and then this is one movie I really don't want to give away. The this is one thing I'm going to say like we don't want to give away the ending for this because it's like, oh yeah you don't want to. This spoil is it. like no. Well, I think that's fair because this is a movie that a lot of people haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the one. It's like I mean, this is the one movie, and I, I, I don't want to name names, but it was one of one of my friends recently was going through, went through a, a rather rough divorce, and just I was like, you know, I called him, I was like, hey, you know, how you doing today? He's like, you know, that scene in Possession where Sam Neill is just sitting in a in his son's room and the just staring blankly off in the space, and like, yeah, that's that's like sixty percent of the first half of that movie, and he's like, that's how I feel all the time, and I'm like, okay. Like, and then when I really thought about it, it's like, that really is, all horror elements aside, one of the most realistic movies I've ever seen about a breakup. Like, yeah. the way it depicts it, because um, it, it's, it's fucking scary. Like, yeah. how insane he, and how insane they both go. Like, um, I mean, there's, 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 after he finds out that she has a lover, there's the scenes where he's just, like, unshaved, and he's at, like, a, uh, he's at, like, a hotel, and he's like, how long have I been here? And the maid's like, you've been here for three weeks. And he's just like, yeah, time to shave. 
and then he's just back to normal, and they don't explain what he's been doing for those three weeks. Probably running, probably falling down the hallway, screaming the whole time. Like, um, he. I mean, you get the feeling that he, when she leaves and she admits that there's someone else, yeah, he has a breakdown. Yes, and he just says, "I don't want to have anything to do with you or with our child, Bob." Bob. Yeah. But then he comes back, and then it slowly becomes clear that she is maybe not actually doing so well either. It becomes very clear that she's. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and that's one of the things is that, like, look, it, it's. I, I've. I make a lot. Of, anyone who knows me, anyone who's familiar with my Facebook persona, I make a lot of. Some would say tasteless jokes about my past. I've had. I, I've. I've went through a rather tremendous breakup a couple years ago um not to get too personal but it was it was it there was a lot of shit a lot of shit happened and uh there there there's the one there there was one element of this that of this film that struck me as like like when i say it's realistic it's it's oh my god the, the, the things that strike me about it were um at the time because this was like the first real breakup I, I endured. At the time, I viewed my ex-girlfriend as this like absolute unfeeling monster. Sure. And it was only years later I realized like, no, she was probably this was probably hell on her too. It wasn't like she just broke up and was like, Well, that's that and fuck it. Like and I mean, that's what this movie portrays. Like, uh Isabella Anjani's character, she's not just like Anna. Yeah, Anna. Well so for yeah. Anna isn't just like like when she's telling him like I want to get a divorce, she's not just like they're not laying in bed and she's like, Oh, by the way, I think we should get divorced. Like she can, she can't get it out. Like she's like fall, you know, she's clearly concerned for him, but it's hard to be, I I mean, and then it's hard to be overly concerned for someone who's being a fucking lunatic the whole time, which is what he's doing. And that another thing that, that the, the other thing that was really realistic is the fucking, the questions, what's going on? Where are you? Is there someone else? What can I do? Like it's the, it's, it's the, it's the digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And like every answer you get, you just want, there's 20 more questions and it just keeps going. Cause just when you think he's over that, he shows back up and he's like, why don't you love me? Ah! And he's like throwing himself around the, or, you know, just being weird. And it's like, I wasn't nearly as dramatic as that, but I, you know, you, you do, when you go through a breakup, when things are falling apart, you want to know, you got to ask these questions. And sometimes just, I mean, a lot of times you just have more, no matter how many answers you get, you get more questions, which is very clearly what happens in this. And then, like often in real life, you find out something you don't want to know. In this case, you know, it, it, sometimes you find out there's someone else. In this case, that someone else is a fucking monstrous octopus. <laughs> I mean, it, it is funny because we've made that joke and it's the movie so much more than that. It's so complicated. The monster is almost like a side thought or it comes up very subtly and then it becomes very important, but it's you don't see it coming. But on the other hand, if you read anything about this movie the director multiple times told yes. people it's a movie about a woman who fucks an octopus yeah. <laughs> like yeah he that's how he described yeah. the movie i think personally i think it's partly because it was very personal I, I mean this movie feels even more fraught than the brood yeah because didn't i mean this this really seems like you know i mean it, it, it's very it's a movie like when you're when you're in a relationship and someone leaves you for someone else. Of course you want to you you're going to make that other person out to be a monster. 
You know what I mean? Like, of, of course you're going to make them out to be this horrific, inhuman thing, and that is literally what happens in this movie. Yeah, there. if you... Uh, we we watched the recent special edition that came out, and in it there's a lot of supplemental features. And one of the things that was both in the booklet and in one of the making of parts was this idea that um, there were things that were excised from the script. And I think we can break down this film into certain elements that don't necessarily resolve. So there is the relational element. Uh, and that, in the original script that didn't come, he started the script with this story that if you think about the story, it's about Tolstoy, but it's, a, you know, a Russian duke, is his wife is having an affair and is leaving him, and he's going to write this story. But as he writes the story about her and what a monster she is, it slowly changes until she's the victim. Yeah, yeah. And it's so, I mean, I, I assume they left it out of the movie because it's such obvious foreshadowing for this movie. That even, even at the moments where she's literally engaged in intimacy with a monster, Sam Neill is still acting in terrible ways. And I, and I think you get this the most in their conversations. He doesn't care about her responses to his questions. No. He doesn't engage with her as a human. He, uh, uh, so one aspect of this, when I say the relationship aspect is one aspect, it's in the name, possession. Possession is not just that she is necessarily possessed in some way, which you know you could make an argument that that's part of what's going on, but possession is also about owning someone. The he sense has, in which he is owning her or he does it does or does not own her. Yeah, and he has zero qualms about using their child, Bob, as a pawn. Like yeah. he has no like I mean there there was the one part where she leaves Bob alone and his his outrage isn't like oh my god my child could be in terrible danger. It's more like She's a terrible human being. Sure, you know what I mean, and it's is like, this how it is? Do you do this? Whatever, yeah. you know, no feeling of like what she might be dealing with. Which, of course, when you're slowly being seduced by a demon spawn, that might be part of the her own. Isn't that like a reoccurring theme for Sam Neill? Is like Event Horizon, The Omen, sure, Jurassic Park, because clearly genetic engineering is the demon spawn. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let, let's get so, but just in this description, we make it sound like okay, it's a movie about. Two people having uh, relationship problems, but then there's a supernatural aspect. But I don't think we're getting at the level of psychotic. So, like, okay, so first off, the first aspect is their relationship and then this idea of possession. Then there's the political undercurrent. Yes. That uh, they're in, I mean, they filmed it in West Berlin for a reason. You know, that they filmed it, the wall is in multiple shots. It's a, it's almost like a character in of its own. It's always there. He's, in some sense, like we said he's a spy. He's doing something that they want him to continue doing. He doesn't want to do. There's a sense of threat and foreboding. It's, the way that it's filmed, the way that his work is portrayed, you get the feeling that larger societal forces like the cold war, but it could be other things are impacting their very small world. So their world is an apartment. It's them. It's Heinrich coming in. It's their kid. It's, you know, all those things. Heinrich, we'll get to that (laughs) too. But then there's a third aspect that I think is worth mentioning is this religious aspect, which actually comes in, not just in the fact that she might be copulating with a supernatural creature of some kind, but there's also the religious aspect 
I think in it is implied both in the characters and their search for meaning. They're regularly talking to each other about God, if there is a God, what God would be like, about what life is, what humans are. And and at first, the movie is shot so psychotically and so um, surrealistically, yeah. you know? There's definitely, I think, some influence on the filmmaker from other film movements, maybe even like the... Uh, Czech New Wave and some other sort of surrealistic filmmakers that you could ignore the dialogue. The dialogue is so complicated and it goes all over the place and it feels nonsensical, especially when Heinrich shows up at their apartment, he's high, he's just saying things, but nonsensical doesn't necessarily equate to without meaning. And I think there's this element of religion to the film that's being asked, that is there, that I was unable to resolve. I know, to complicate that even more, originally there was another character in the script that they excised, but she has an ex-husband. Her ex-husband is Jewish. He's regularly talking about, in the original script, about being Jewish. And at the end, there's there's an important scene on the staircase that we won't ruin for you, but the director described that staircase as Jacob's Ladder. That he imagined that like Jacob's ladder, and in the original wow. script, the Jewish ex-husband plays an important role in helping someone get to the roof, and so there's almost this feeling. And 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 then in the original script, which I can ruin this for you because it doesn't happen in the movie because he's not in the movie, he has a heart attack and dies. He plays this role, and then he just dies because he's just horrified at what has happened. So, um, not that I think it's worth complicating a movie with the stuff that's not in the movie, but I think there's a feeling to me, both in the use of religion in the dialogue, but also the themes of possession, of ownership, of what people are valuable to each other and and what that meaning is that I think makes sense. And um, it's certainly present in her struggle that while Sam Neill is going through these things, I mean, first of all, he takes a moral turn because he starts helping her with murder and whatever, you know, all all of a sudden he's like her uninvited accomplice in a number of evil things that it feels like she's doing out of devotion. Like she, whatever this thing is that is developing, she is, she's doing it for him and Samuel is doing it for her. Yeah. She's addicted to it. She can't let it go. She's about it. It's like this thing. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, again, we don't want to ruin the ending, but this question of identity, I think, is very important and about who he is at the end. And there's, there's, a, there's a doppelganger thing going on here because there is an innocent character who is played by the same actress as who plays yeah. his wife, Anna. She also plays this teacher who loves Bob and takes care of Bob. And there's some interesting things in the end with her as well and what does she represent and... How, what is her relationship? Because Sam Neill basically uses her character to get and, over his, just to get over what he's feeling, and this question of possession is there too. So I think the, all those things are related. You add in Heinrich. Uh, there's there's a sense in which Heinrich is a certain kind of like new agey guru, yoga drug he's, addict. He, he actually is it. If, if I remember correctly, it's because of Heinrich that the first reference to God is made. Sure. When she when when Sam Neill finds the postcard from. Taj Mahal and he says sure half of this is God's face the other half is yours and then like he shows up and starts fucking saying whatever and he's he's this weird he's both spiritual and nihilistic like there are no morals but there is a God you know God is this it's not in its own way it's not a movie I think that's engaging obviously Christian imagery 
but there's still some of that going on. But there's definitely religious concepts of like ultimate value being questioned. Well, wasn't there? Uh, I, I mean. There, there was the. There's the. First off, if, if some of you who might not have seen this movie, if you are internet savvy at all, might be familiar with the. I would say it's the most insane scene, the the fucking subway scene. Sure, that is like a gif that's been floating around of this this actress. It's in. She has a mental, like a complete brutal mental breakdown in a subway and it's I, and it's not even clear if it's just mental because eventually goo starts coming out yeah, of her body she, that's what it was something like, something is happening something there. comes out of her and she says like she's i i feel like an asshole because i'm i i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher the line but she's it she's saying that this was the miscarriage of doubt and it's twin was faith or something like she's oh, right. you know what I mean? And so so it's like and I I've I've heard like interpretations that that was like a form of like virgin birth on her behalf. Was that th- all this? Well, yeah. And there's this uh, the, again in in the reading the supplemental materials. There was some cut footage of maybe like something physical happening there. Like yeah, there being an eyeball or something. Yeah, like yeah. That, or her having eyes on her hands or whatever, whatever. But I mean, I mean, let's spend a moment. Actually, uses a divergent uh, thing to talk about. The, the performances in this movie are amazing. Like They're really good. The yeah. three main people: Heinrich, Sam Neill. I love how I don't know Heinrich, the actor's name. It's but not important. It's Heinrich, Heinrich, Sam Neill, and uh, the actress who plays Anna. What is her name again? Isabella Anjana. Anjani, something like that. Anjani, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, they're amazing. She is, she is amazing. She the, won multiple she, awards for this, and rightfully fucking so. Yeah, she just is on another level. And after this movie, she talked a lot about how she would never want to play a character like this again. Yeah. And honestly, I understand that because it had to be grueling. Like this had to be emotionally yeah. and physically demanding. But the point is, is that she kills it. Sam Neill. He can be a little stiff at times, but I think it works for this it role. Totally, the and thing he I, definitely goes crazy. Like the he thing, goes off the deep the, end. The thing I love about Sam Neill is Sam Neill always, 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 always has that hint, no matter how much you're reading for him, he always has that note of, I don't know if I trust this guy. And I, when I say that about Jurassic Park, I'm not being like ironic or comedic. Like Even in Jurassic Park, he, he, he's got that like detachment from everyone else. And then, like, you look at, like, Event Horizon, and from the fucking gate in that movie, you're like, there's something not right with this guy. Sure. And then, like, you look at, um, I, 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 I often have to say that this, I'm not joking when I say this, like, the final conflict, the third Omen movie is my favorite one. Because, huh. like, Sam Neill is the perfect antichrist for that. Because he is so, like, you look in the second one, and Damien Thorne's, like, a teenager, and he's like, I don't know if I want to be the antichrist. Like, I don't want to be a normal kid. Like, Sam Neill as Damien Thorne is like, fuck that, war on God, we're going to rip down the gates of heaven and hang those motherfuckers. Like, he always has that note of like, he, like his cursed Nazarene speech in like the final conflict, shout out to Katie Hub because she shares my love of that movie. Um, I can't believe you're like totally hyping the third Omen it's, Have you right seen now. it? You've seen it. I have not seen it. It's really good. I'm very familiar with the poster because it has that menacing Sam Neill smile, which, by the way, he busts out for this movie. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, And yeah. then in this movie, you're like, I should feel something for this character, but you're watching him and you're like, he could fucking kill that kid at any second. Like, when I, when I first saw this movie, I was amazed that that kid didn't die at Sam Neill's hands. Sure. Just because, like... He he's like there. There would be scenes where you're just like looking at him, and you're like, you're out of your fucking mind. You're not a person. Like 
he 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 just has that menace to him. And like again, my first exposure to him was Alan Grant. But even as a kid, I was like, he's not like the right. He's not like those other people. Like there's something about him that sets him aside. And like this movie just exemplifies it. Like yeah. he, he's such like a, like a manic human being. Like there, uh, there is that, that reality of his transformation too, that he, I guess you do feel some amount of sympathy for him when the movie begins, but as it goes forward, just this, like, I don't know. There's again, I think the movie, it's not a Yodorowsky movie. It's not, completely without i mean it has a plot it goes forward yeah i but could roughly so tell much, you what it's about yeah yeah but there's definitely even her so the scene in the subway is unbelievable but it, it's preceded by her in a church and again like i said there is not that much direct christian imagery in the film partly because it feels very cold and cold war and whatever but in this moment she's in a church she's looking at a crucifix and then if she leaves, she's like laughing, like this is the funniest thing, yeah, yeah, ever. And and it, and it's not clear that you're in on the joke because at first you think, oh, she's laughing at God, you know, she's in this other space and whatever. Yeah, but it's not even clear that's what's going on. And then when she has her eruption, whatever that is, it's oh, it's her unbelievable. Eruption. Well, it's like a breaking. Like what is that? Yeah, you know, fucking she, the floodgates open. And, and and it's not clear again as Sam Neill is aiding her in her descent. It's not helpful. And the way again, oh man, it's really hard not to ruin the ending right now because I want to talk about them together. But the point is, is that when you see this film and you see the ending, in a sense, something moves forward. That is not about her. Like it's not she. Uh, she doesn't win. This whole no. movie is about her slowly. The tragedy, even as she is making these decisions in the film that are horrifying, you feel. I just felt bad for. Her. I feel bad every time I watch the movie. I feel bad for her the whole time. Yeah, because you feel like. I mean, I, I, again, I don't mean to to ruin the ending, but you feel like she was. There was this third party that was leaving right. this fucking wake of track like in, right. in, in its wake just just tragedy everywhere right and that's what walks away at the end to do god the fuck knows what else somewhere else like in, in that sense you could really a lot of people talk about how you know we watched a Cronenberg movie sometimes people say this with directors like carpenter but uh, a lot of times you hear people use this phrase like well they really use horror as a vehicle to get at something else and like 90 percent of the time i think that's kind of bullshit because it devalues horror. Yes. You don't yes. need to use horror to get something else. Horror can have a lot in it. But in this movie, I kind of feel like uh, they use horror to get at something else. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, I, I really feel like uh, Zulowski, uh horror is just a medium for him to, and he, it, it, again, I, I don't want to keep referencing outside material too much, but he made this film right after he, because of the film industry in Poland. So during this time, Poland was still communist. And so making films or any art was difficult. You know, yeah. you could be shut down, you know, and think, think of a number of directors who face this sort of thing, whether that's in the Czech new wave when they all started getting banned or that's Tarkovsky when he had to leave his own uh, Russia to make movies. This is very similar. He had worked on this movie for a long time it's a sci-fi film. The government is not smart, but they're not that stupid. They basically get that what's underneath the sci-fi film is a critique of them, and they shut it down. Yeah. So he's 
justifiably angry going into this movie. And then he's also going through a divorce. So I think in some ways the political stuff is infused in the film, I think because that's what he's dealing with. Okay. But I think also there's a sense for me in which, uh, the idea that, that the sci-fi film is a mask. He's wearing a mask because he can't just be who he wants to be. Yeah. 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 In some ways this film continues that it's not, it's a horror film, but it's not trying to be a horror film. It's not trying to be the essence of a, of a horror film per se. No, it has, but it, but it, gets at those things. It, it uses the horror aspect so fucking effectively, even though I'm never, I'm very disturbed watching this movie. I'm never frightened. No, I'm disturbed as well. I mean, I, I think it, it takes, it takes a lot of, I mean, it, it uses horror on multiple levels. It uses the horror of everyday life, the horror of a relationship falling apart, the horror of alienation, the horror of anxiety, impending insanity, the horror of all the little horrors that a lot of people go through. And then, uses the horror of the other the the the, the alien the the fucking cephalopod like whatever that thing is like i mean it, it, it well and what it becomes i think is not irrelevant especially if in the film in some sense he identifies with sam neil then what is the ending sort of mean for that again i we don't want to give that yeah, yeah. give that away from I mean, people but i i the, the point being is that i think that there's this question of um, I don't know. I almost get a sense of guilt from the movie that it's as much as it's an angry film. I don't think, and and the way he described it and the things I read him talk about a little bit is that it's a movie that is autobiographical without being autobiographical. In other words, he wrote a mo- he wrote and directed a movie related to divorce because he was going through a divorce, but he didn't want it to be just about him. He didn't want yeah. to make a divorce movie. So this is the way he could make a movie related to those themes, related to his own feelings. But it's so in some sense it's about him, but I I, I do get I do wonder if there's more sort of tragedy in this movie than he would feel about his own life. I, don't I mean know. I I think there's it's also it's also worth noting that uh how you had said he he had experienced some problems with um, artistic freedom in a communist country. I mean, the opening of the movie is Sam Neill like finishing finishing the job, quote unquote. Right. And then the in a beautifully shot that long shot, unbelievable, amazing, amazing, unbelievable. Um, and the people he's working for are like you're going to come back and do some more for us. And he's like, well, man, they're like, no, come back and do more for us. Like, it, it's it, they're not like telling him he can't do something, but they're telling him what he can and can't cannot do. And I think that might reflect upon sure. You know what I mean? It, and that's the whole. Even in the end, they're they're still trying to persuade him. Like you should do this for us. And it's they're trying to make him do something he doesn't necessarily want to. And do. they're present at a very climactic moment. Like he, yes. the guy he works with is there. There's this. There's this almost this feeling that even though there's something metaphysical, like there, it, it's a. I, I can't stress this enough for folks who haven't seen the movie that it's not just about their relationship at an emotional level. That something transcendent is occurring between them. Yeah, and that transcendence isn't necessarily good. <laughs> yeah, it could be menacing, evil, whatever. But something beyond this world. But the state, like the state, the government apparatus, is the one that. And they actually have the final say in some sense. Yes, and there's there's a there's a, a critique of of the bureaucracy in this movie because it's yeah. like, and it's not it's not it's it's very heavy handed. It's not like subtle or symbolic at all. I mean, sure, there's so many shots of Sam Neill in front of a giant building or down a long hallway. Like, 
just made to feel fucking small in the face of the cinematography in that sense in establishing a sense of place and using the setting as either menace or storytelling the movement of the camera everything about this movie is visually fucking perfect like it's it's and i and i don't mean beautiful in the sense of it looks nice i mean it's beautiful in that it works with the story it it's works with the script it's flawless. brilliant it's, it's just unbelievable yeah. and it's meant, oh it's I mean, so disturbing. you you had said like the one thing that i, I didn't even notice until you pointed out was how like they kept um it, it was the scene where heinrich and sam neil's character mark are walking down a hallway and Heinrich's just all over him like dude and get the fuck off of me he's like trying to peel Heinrich off but they're still walking and the camera is on them the whole time and then you point out like oh I love this apartment because how big it is and I was like this apartment's big and then you see like holy shit it is big it's just the camera's focus on them the whole time that you could describe it as like a documentary style and that it's like handheld but it never quite gets there but there's a lot of handheld camera work there's a lot of up close a lot of claustrophobia. I mean, that's the thing is that even when they're showing you the outside, like they end up outside, he hits her, she's bleeding. Ugh. It still feels so tight. Yeah. You know, it feel, they feel trapped. I, I don't know. I, it certainly is not a, uh, it's not a tourism film for Berlin at all. Like uh, no, watching it, you're like, I never there's the one. There. There, there, there's the one scene where he, he blows up a kitchen and he's yeah, outside sure. jumping around and everything, and, pe- and then he just jumps on a motorcycle and <laughs> drives away. Like just off. Yeah, I guess there is a hot dog cart. That part was kind of cool. Yeah, I like hot dogs, so I'm okay yeah. with that. But no, I mean, uh, and it's so. Here's the thing: in a film in which there's larger themes and there's relationships and there's whatever, and your horror is just a not a small part. It's it's definitely a horror. Horror is definitely part of the film. All that uh, – I'm sort of stumbling over my words here, but basically what I'm trying to say is there. it would be so easy to skip the uh, special effects, the gore, the gross, gooey gushness of it. Yeah. You know, there could be – it would be so easy to like half-ass the part that makes this a monster movie. But what makes it so effective is no matter how many long speeches you get or weird atmosphere, whatever, when it's time to see something fucked up, yeah. the dude is not playing around. Like the creature is gross in every stage. It's disgust it's like if you've ever wondered what like I wonder what it'd look like if uh, my my love was being railed by Cthulhu, watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you are the worst. Almost Almost. And even just little things, like when she is cutting the meat, that whole scene is fucked up. Like, anyways, all that to say, I think this is a film that it's a little weird for us because it's certainly not strict horror. You know, like we, I mean, on a podcast where we'll probably end up talking about, you know, a movie like Pumpkinhead, it's weird to be talking about possession, but I think it worked as we're thinking about horror movies that deal with loss and deal with love. This is probably almost a cheater in that it's the most obvious. Like that's really what this is it. Yeah. It's, it's the most and it gets at it in such a visceral and affecting way. But I do have unanswered questions, the political aspect to it. You don't, it's not, you don't film so many shots with soldiers on the wall looking at binoculars through binoculars yeah. at you, like not on purpose. Like the, 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 so the political aspect is there. So I'm still trying to deconstruct that in my yeah, brain I mean, a little it, bit to understand it. And the religious aspect. I mean, I don't think it's just, I don't think the religious aspect is just there because whatever this thing is, is supernatural. I don't think that explains. I it. think it, it might, it might be that 
I don't know, like in a feel, the feeling of abandonment. Yeah. Because like, I mean, Sam Neill's character definitely radiates bitterness. Sure. At, Cause I, I think he tells Heinrich at one point, like Heinrich's blah, 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 God, this, that, but, and Sam Neill just looks at him and says, to me, God is a disease. Yeah. And it's just like, I mean, there's this aspect to Sam Neill's character too, where he, in his obsession with Anna is also reaching towards something more. When he talks about going under the porch to watch his dog die. When I want to see kid. what it, I want to see what he sees when he yelps that last time. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Oh, but, it, but it's not, we're sort of describing Sam Neill as like this awful, but his journey there does, you start to go with him at first. Like when he's just upset, in other words, I don't think it's completely over the top in the sense of like dehumanizing completely. No, it's it's there's I mean, something it, there, but it certainly is not sympathetic. No, I mean it's it's to the point of character at, at times. Yeah, but then you start to lose sympathy for him when he's just like when 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 Anna is like just slicing meat in the kitchen, and she's like trying to prepare stuff around the kitchen, and he's just fucking with the questions, and she's like, "Yes, okay, sure." And he just, he very clearly knows what she's doing and he's still doing it, getting in her way on purpose. Like nothing too, like the, I, I guess microaggression would be the phrase, like just enough to piss her off and inconvenience her. And it's like, I don't feel bad for you anymore because you're being a fucking asshole about this. I think uh, there's this also a sense for me in which the movie is like the, obviously, Possession, as I've said a couple times now, is about ownership, about how we try to own each other, how we try to own, how the government tries to own us, how we try to own divinity and transcendence. Like, I think all that is interspersed in the film. But there's also a sense in which the film is possessed. Like, there's an energy to the film that has nothing to do with any of the characters, like, that the characters are all responding to this inner craziness to how the yeah. food, it, at times it's almost like they're responding to the camera. Like, I don't, yeah. There's just something so compelling and haunting about this movie, and it's not just her performance. So that is a huge part of it. Yeah, I think there's a lot going on with the dialogue and with the the directing and editing that it just makes this movie just push you, even in the moments where it is maybe more meditative or whatever. There's just like this like ooh underlying just poking. Um, in the liner notes to the Blu-ray. There's a reference to like uh, Georges Bataille uh, and and a few French uh, theorists who sort of think of concepts of divinity in the profane. You know, yeah. uh, Bataille is the most obvious, and and uh, if you haven't never read uh, any Bataille and you have any tolerance for continental philosophers, uh, I I love him a lot. He's he's especially for fans of horror. I think it'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm surprised more horror people actually don't read Bataille because I think there's a lot going on there. But uh, all that to say, I think connecting uh, a theorist like Bataille to this movie makes a lot of sense because there is this sense of something more, something bigger, something compelling that is also like horrifying like there's this like inner horror to those things that like move us and i and i kind of saw that connection there and and i think that's what brings me will bring me back to the i mean the reason i own this special edition is i'm gonna watch this movie again sometime it's definitely worth watching again and again and again like any uh any final thoughts before we wrap up about that the uh did you think this i don't know why this stuck in my head 
Uh, I think Sam Neill's performance, this is like a tiny, tiny little minor thing. Do Actually, it. Actually, two minor. I'll get to the first. Do it. Liam thinks he was too good to watch my VHS to DVD transfer. Yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> I am way too good for that. Especially because your VHS to DVD transfer is probably the American version, which is a different than what we watched. It probably was, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the one, one tiny thing I, I think was like a crack in the facade of, of Sam Neill, but I think it worked, was when he first meets Heinrich, and Heinrich is just being Heinrich, and he's like hanging all over Sam Neill, and he's like touching his face, and Sam Neill just for a moment cracks this like, what the, like this smile, and I, I thought it, it's, I, I remember when uh, the second fucking Christopher Nolan bat, The Dark Knight, Sure. Everyone made such a big deal about the Joker because when he was up in Maggie Gyllenhaal's face, she was upset and that wasn't part of the script. Like she had lines, but she forgot him because she was so disturbed. And I mean, it, it worked, but I think in this movie, there's an element where like Heinrich is all up in Sam Neill's face. And again, it's a minor detail, but you just, you could see Sam Neill kind of just like, get the fuck, like trying to like, <laughs> like, you could tell he's just like, you could tell he's like kind of creeped out and it's not like acting. It's like, I don't fucking want this guy because the dude's like, uh, like they're like are they gonna fuck like and he's just like get like and i was wondering like was that was that sam neil being like genuinely uncomfortable or was that like a bit of acting it's a it's a minor thing but it was just like heinrich is an interesting character and i and we could spend more time on that i i think in the interest of he's, time we'll he's more of a novelty to me i'll be honest like he well but he, there's something about that i i, I think it's I think he's in there to make fun of something. He's in there to make fun of something, even though there's something so like androgynous about him, but also very masculine. When he's just riding he's so, the motorcycle around, he's but. so possessive of Anna, but he's like in an almost a vulnerable way. He's like, she's free to be whatever she wants, and he's like, but I need to talk to her. Like, I need to have like, yeah. There's this sense in which he wants her to feel independent, but he wants to own her. The most amazing scene to me is when he finally finds her and he's trying to like seduce her. Yeah, yeah. She's just like creeping away she doesn't want anything to do with him and he just will not let go like there's something about that that kind of like masculine like oh we just don't own each other like we're so free but doesn't really want you to be free that's just about him yeah 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 that's about his ability to do what he wants it's not about her anyways there's also the sense in which he beats the shit out of sam deal that's amazing so easily just uh, it's almost he's like the, he's gonna make out with him, and then he just yeah. hits him. He's like this androgynous, like a like aquiline, effeminate, like Nancy boy. And then Sam Neil fucks up and takes a swing at him, and then he learns the hard way that you don't fuck with Heinrich. And Heinrich, Heinrich puts just, him down, just, and then picks him up and carries him out like like a like a your, sack of potatoes. You're mine now. I've bested you in combat. You will now know Heinrich. Just because Heinrich never sh- closes his shirts ever, every shirt is open <laughs> to the belly button. That doesn't make him not. A strong. I feel like actually, I want to see the movie where Heinrich and Oliver Reed like just I was take just over. About to say, there are two types of masculinity for Liam now. There is Heinrich and Oliver Reed. Uh, if they could be my mentors, I would be so happy. <laughs> All right. Well, so I think that wraps up our discussion. I think there's more as always to be said, if you have specific questions or thoughts about either of these movies, we'd love for you to let us know and we will respond to those on the next episode. Uh, We wanted to wrap up hyping a few things coming up. Justin, you had some things you wanted to point out. Oh yes. Exhumed Films at the Mahoning Drive-In is they announced, they made their first announcement today for their uh, zombie fest. John, I will bring that up. It's uh, for those unfamiliar the Mahoning Drive-In, it's about an hour north of the Lehigh Valley, hour and a half north. Um, it's an old drive-in uh, in Exhumed Films. They do like 
classic 35 millimeter films there. Um, the 2016 drive-in season, they're starting it on Memorial Day weekend, May 27th to May 29th. It's going to be their second annual zombie fest with the films, the gates of hell, burial ground, night of the zombies, return, living dead, the children, the death dealers, the beyond death dream and shockwaves. Um, I cannot hype this place enough. They are fucking amazing. I love going there. If you like horror movies at all, you should go. Um, that is actually some, that was actually what. Liam and I started doing when he when we first started hanging out was oh, that's true was going there like it, it it's it's I mean it it feels like I don't mean it, it's not commercialized I don't mean to be pretentious it feels like you're in the 70s watching a drive-in I mean it's it's so authentic it's it's very it's it's like it's an authentic experience for watching a horror film um that's the Mahoning drive-in look it up uh you should also follow Zoom films because they do a lot of work there they're on Facebook they have updates about it all the time um, I'm actually going, so tomorrow they're doing a triple feature at the International House. Now, this is on Thursday, so if you're listening to this, chances are you're probably hearing this after I went to this thing, because I don't think I'm going to have it up before I leave the house tomorrow. But to, but uh, if you check out exhumefilms.com, they list all their shows. But hopefully on our next episode, I'll be talking about their triple feature of Horror of the Zombies Night of the Howling Beast and the House of Psychotic Women. So uh, I'm pretty excited for those films tomorrow night. Um, we also just love them. Yeah. If you haven't they, noticed, uh, Cinepunks is now also hosting uh, Joseph Gervais's Loud Fast Philly, uh, a documentation of punk and hardcore and music history in Philadelphia. Uh, Joseph is one of the members of Exhumed Films and helps. You know, as part of that, he's he's. It's kind of great because between Loudfest Philly, Exhumed, Diabolic DVD, which he runs with Jesse Nelson, which I've ordered many a film from, and uh, and when he was much younger, being part of the Cabbage Collective and booking shows, this dude has had a hand in like so many things that I love. Like just this one guy. It's yeah. like, man, Joseph is it's crazy. But uh, uh, hopefully, if I will see some people at this thing tomorrow. That would be great. Um, I'm sure there's some other screenings they have coming up, as well as uh, we. I want to just mention really quickly that the Philadelphia Film Festival is coming up. It's a little bit away. It's in April, but uh, they're going to be making an announcement soon, so keep an eye out for that. It would be great to see some folks out for those screenings as well at Philomoka. Uh, yeah. Anything yeah. else? Uh, I mean, if you... If you haven't already uh, and you're listening to this, go to Facebook and join the Har Business Facebook page. Follow us, the Harbiz666 on Twitter. Um, yeah, if you see a tattooed weirdo wearing a Cinepunk shirt at Monster Mania with a girl out of his league, that's me. Come up and say hi. Uh, witness me freaking out when I meet Tony Todd again. That's about it. That's perfect. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll Peace. talk to you later.